This was like this was one of those times where I purchased SummerSlam. Yeah. And that was a mistake. And um <laughs> you know what, Diesel and Mabel didn't Diesel, do it for you? <laughs> I mean I made them do it for me, you know, as I did right. most pay per views at the time. But then they announced this thing, which is uh, a guaranteed title change, and I'm like, fuck, this is amazing. Why didn't I wait to get this fucking show? What you just said, I made them do it for me. That really is the beginning of Lapstam, isn't it? Yep. The first time it's, you realize that you're trying to make the show more important than it is because yes. of what you're seeking, because yes. of what you want out of wrestling. It's not yes. like they've intrigued you such that you've bought it. You bought it with the hope that it would be more than it appears to it, be. As I, this is the thing. This is it. I mean, there's no question that wrestling is like any drug because it's you you'll never feel as good nope. as you did that first time and yet that fact never stops you from chasing it exactly in fact, it, in fact it, worse. it becomes worse because you want to have that feeling and it never comes back well, you have never one... gave you that feeling because you're looking for hogan i am and he does a big boot and i was excited as it's like i was like just please just drop a leg just drop a leg Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for The Wrestler. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host, Julio. Julio, it's that special time of year again. It is WrestleMania season. Uh, this would our fourth or fifth WrestleMania bonus episode. In the past, I know we covered uh, Ready to Rumble, Glow, um, no holds Man barred. on the Moon, No Holds Barred. Yeah, it's it's all led to this. You know, we're going to be running on fumes the next few years trying to find a good uh, wrestling movie that works within our realm. Uh, but it is WrestleMania week. If you're listening to this now uh, upon release, back in my day, we had WrestleMania Sunday and then eventually there was WrestleMania weekend. And now it's just a week because excess is uh, not a word that Vince McMahon has ever familiarized himself with. And I mean, the philosophy of less is more, and this isn't exclusive to wrestling. That's just been abolished everywhere, but we remain committed to our goal and our mission statement here to rage against the rotten tomatoes machine and doing so with a professional wrestling based movie to celebrate the showcase of the immortals, the show of shows, WrestleMania Julio. 
uh, not just in the history of uh, this podcast, but in the history of our friendship. It's been a, a growing exercise in you learning about wrestling via osmosis, uh, <laughs> be it at any of my SummerSlam parties or, of course, on this podcast. But with this one, this would have been this the release of this movie would have been before you and I had uh, met. This is before our paths crossed in life. And uh, I think it's safe to say this movie transcended the realm of professional wrestling. And I assume. You saw Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler upon theatrical release. Is that safe to say? I did. I am pretty sure I saw it twice upon theatrical release. I might have screened it and then gone and watched it again with my friends. Uh, I watched it not as a wrestling fan, which I wasn't, and I'm not, but I guess mostly as a Darren Aronofsky fan. Mm -hmm. And as that, you know, it was, even as, as an Aronofsky movie, was it was a little weird it was not what i expected i imagine that we both had very different experiences just based on our our wrestling backgrounds mine being non-existent and yours being a, a lifetime of pro wrestling fandom. <laughs> plentiful uh yeah and i assume our experiences are different this was a limited release uh initially in 2009 around the award season is when i saw it i believe i saw it in february of 09 uh, maybe January. I went to a theater in Dallas with two of my friends and the young lady that I was dating at the time. And coming out of the theater, I fell down the stairs and fucked up my ankle horrendously. So that's like immediately my physical relationship with this movie. Uh, it was one of those that like I fell and I thought I twisted it, but then like I got in the car and took my shoe off and like it just like started expanding. And then I went to the campus doctor and she thought that I was just like acting to try to get Vicodin. Uh, cause like I was explaining, like I couldn't even walk right for at least a week and I got x-rays done. She said it wasn't broken. I maintained something happened to it because to this day when the weather changes, it fucking hurts. And I did get a script of, uh, Vicodin. Not, and did that's she not tell me you, bragging. Uh, did she tell you that you couldn't wrestle again? Well, no, when she said she wasn't going to prescribe me anything, I said, the only people who are going to tell me. When I'm done taking my pills, and then I pointed to the crowd, and it says, these people right here. So that's my immediate relationship with the wrestler. Uh, it always makes me think of my ankle and how I was ex in extreme discomfort after seeing this movie for uh, a good while. I did get the script, and it was like the only time in my life where I had painkillers and used them for their legitimate purposes. Uh, <laughs> Never since then, you see Mickey Rourke limping and just kind of moaning his way through this movie. And you just nod, and you're like, I know, I know. Oh, can relate, brother. Yeah, I, I understand the pain that he's going through. Before we just jump, before we ram jam into this episode, <laughs> <laughs> if this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, very well could be. We always seem to pick up a few stragglers on these WrestleMania bonus episodes as professional wrestling industry attracts only the finest and most upstanding of people, as evident in this movie. <laughs> Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, our battle cry. We find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, uh, a lot of times referred to as certified fresh, and kind of make a case for uh, perhaps why it's overrated or overthought in the minds of critics. Uh, conversely, we find one of those nasty green splotches, a rotten film, typically about 30% below is what we shoot for, and make a case for its positive merit, maybe why um, people miss the boat on it. Being that The Wrestler is 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, 98%. we're going <laughs> to be taking this, this dream crusher of a movie to task, this basically 
theatrical portrayal of the documentary Beyond the Mat. We're going to cut it down to size. We're going to cut it down to the level of the Rams' relationship with his daughter. That's how low <laughs> we're going to get with it. Uh, Julio, as with all of our traditional episodes, if anyone listening wants to know how we really feel about the movie, they just have to hang around for the second half. Yes, that's correct. In real talk, that's where we tell you how we really feel. And uh, new listeners... <laughs> I'm speaking to you directly right now. Those of you who come from the world of wrestling, uh, stick around for real talk because Contrarian's Corner might turn you off <laughs> if you don't quite understand our gimmick. Because, you know, the, the thing with these, with the past WrestleMania episodes we've done is that they were rotten movies for the most part. Mm-hmm. So we were always talking positively about everything that was going on. And, and, and so even if in real talk we didn't like the movies, in Contrarian's Corner it sounded like we were positive towards everything that wrestling represents. And now, because we're doing a very, very fresh movie, I don't know about you, Alex, but my strategy is going to... It could come across as antagonistic towards wrestling fandom (laughs) and pro wrestling in general. And uh, I wouldn't want anybody to misinterpret that. You know, we're all doing this for fun. If you want to hear what I really feel and what Alex really feels about the wrestler and everything related to it, stick around for Real Talk where we will just... Stop pretending and just be real. You're going to stir him up like Tom Segura did recently. Get everyone pissed at you. And- I'm going to be like uh, David Arquette. Just getting everybody mad at me. The Ready to Rumble episode was within our first year. So listening to it was kind of painful. You know, people always talk about <laughs> their early work, not really enjoying it. We were still talking like we think people on the radio talk. So like our inflections weren't really natural or uh, authentic. <laughs> And so the discussion, like, there's some good discussion points and, you know, some uh, naturally we're funny men. Uh, there's some funny content to it. And also when we get going about uh, in the second half, you're just absolute detesting of Scott Kahn in that movie. But <laughs> yeah, we've, we've come a long way, baby. Uh, we we set, we flow a lot better and sound a lot more natural now. Um but the reason I mentioned that is because in Contrarian's Corner of Ready to Rumble, uh, you praise the level of hijinks and comedy in, in the movie. And you say, like, you need the comedic relief. Otherwise, you're just stuck with the wrestler. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was pretty perfect to, to segue into this. Um, so, yeah, if you're a first time listener and curious about any of those, that's my disclaimer for Ready to Rumble. We were still kind of finding our footing with that one, uh, but I stand by our man on the moon and um, No Holds Barred was a fun one. That was our first remote recording, correct? Mm-hmm, that is correct. Mark and the Julio, beginning of, of this really weird pandemic era. Julio had a really hard time with that movie. I uh, did. So hopefully this year's WrestleMania bonus will redeem it. So The Wrestler originally premiered in Venice on September 5th of 2008. Looks like it began its uh, limited distribution in the United States on December 17th of 2008 and uh, carried a lot of weight heading into the 2009 award season. Mickey Rourke, of course, nominated for Best Actor, and I believe Miss Marissa Tomei received a nomination for Best Supporting Actress. An extremely modest budget of $6 million with a recorded box office return of around $45 million. Ooh. It's a movie that definitely with age has garnered more notoriety like i said i had to drive like 30 minutes to find a theater that was showing it and i lived in dallas at the time the dfw area so if you're you know you're in a big metropolitan area like that and you have to drive 30 minutes to find some place showing it it shows how limited of a release it is that's why you moved to austin none of this shit here 
<laughs> well, that's right. I could have just gone to the draft house and seen it. I'm, my family, that's where they went to see it because I was like, you got to see this. So they went to the Ritz to watch it. Upon viewing for this recording, I have my, the wrestler Blu-ray that was released in 2009 that I threw on that movie companies going with Blu-ray as opposed to HD DVD. Mm-hmm. So like the copy on the back of it, you'll flip when you see it in Blu-ray. It was one of those, you know, how when DVDs first started, it was crystal clear picture. Uh, so it still has all the, you know, the hyperbole about how amazing Blu-ray is on the back. And it was in the early days where the the cases were more heavy duty. Like immediately when I pulled it off the shelf and felt how heavy it is versus like a modern Blu-ray. Because, you know, like the plastic's so much thinner now and everything. Again, there's so many of you listening that are just streaming people. And if it's your first time, that's a big part of my personality is I'm very uh, dedicated to physical media. So there's some of you who have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about right now. But for, you know, just posterity, I had to get that out there and explain that that tickled me. Um, Does it have, a, like, is the cover the the poster? Does it just make your work jumping at you? Or is uh, it the yeah, one where he's, he's kind of like crawling from? The poster is the one where he's like selling on the ropes, like his head's down. Right. The yeah, the Blu-ray cover art I have is the him diving through the air with the Ram Jam, uh, just kind of the silhouette of him. You can't clearly make out his face. And the bonus features there's a a pretty awesome making of documentary on this, like that follows Aronofsky around, and a hilarious wrestlers roundtable. Where they have <laughs> Roddy Piper and DDP, Greg Valentine, Brutus Beefcake, and someone else, like fucking Lex Luger in there. You quickly come away with the knowledge, hey, these are real wrestlers, and that's where so much of the writing came from, where these guys just massive egos. Like Roddy Piper, you know, God rest his soul, but he starts like his dissertation on the wrestler by saying, well, as a fellow actor, and I was just, I'm done. <laughs> I, I, said, I said, I'm done, Piper. And go wrestle Goldust and we'll talk, but I'm not dealing with this shit. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, the music video for The Wrestler by Bruce Springsteen, which it's the boss. So there you no, go. Uh, no lap dance tutorial from Marisa Tomei. <laughs> oh, God, that would have been awesome. No, sadly. <laughs> and there's no, like, yeah, how to throw an arm drag by Mickey Rourke. <laughs> Julio, oh. uh, is this streaming anywhere? Uh, it is a, a bunch of places, but then once again, I mentioned it in our uh, Bachelorette episode. So if if you're not a patron, you haven't listened to that yet. Uh, but I I went back to Redbox once again. They got me with the with the promise of a cheaper price, right? It was uh three ninety nine to rent everywhere else, but Redbox had it for two ninety nine, and then I went there, and it was of course two ninety nine for standard definition, three ninety nine for high definition, and uh, and I was like, you know what? I've seen this movie a couple times. It's late. Uh, I honestly, I was halfway convinced that I was going to end up watching it on my laptop, like lying in bed. So I was like, I'm going to go with standard definition, save a buck. Instantly regretted it because I ended up, <laughs> <laughs> I ended up watching it downstairs uh, on the big TV. And I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm spoiled. Everything is HD now. So when something is SD on a big screen, it's noticeable. And so. Oh, yeah. The entire time, the, the almost two hours of runtime, I'm like, man, this is fine, but it could look so much better. <laughs> That's not a fault of the movie. That was poor judgment on my part. But other than that, it was, it was good. You know, it definitely, I, it, it's, it's going to be a future purchase. Uh, without getting too much into real talk, I, I, I feel like I need to own this movie. I don't know if I'll get like the, 
the edition with all the bells and whistles that you have, but um, <laughs> I do definitely want to own it. Like I have the disc and not be at the mercy of whatever the streaming services want to give me. <laughs> so what we're learning, uh, we wrestling fans are currently learning with the WWE Network transition to Peacock. We You cannot be at the mercy of the streaming services. You do not want to be in a situation like that. And right now it's like in my situation, pretty much anything I've... I, I wanted to make sure I have constant access to if need be in the world of wrestling. I have, I'm sure there's a handful of matches or shows I could think of that I don't own, but I've been jestingly kind of joking about it online, but seeing people getting really mad about this peacock transfer, I'm like, it's the same thing for you fuckers that rely on Netflix and Hulu to, for all your movies all the time. <laughs> when the internet goes down, I'm still fine. When my data plan <laughs> runs out for the month, I still have what I need. Okay. Well, you don't have to be an asshole about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying I'm more well prepared than y'all that's the only other thing I think there are some things that are important in life and those we need to own there's a lot of shit that I'm just happy that I can usually access online and it doesn't have to occupy space on my shelves I, I can relate to that and you have all those matches on VHS probably so it just takes up like a whole wall I do have a shit ton of VHSs that are just in this big <laughs> trunk in storage. I don't even have a working VCR. I think I've lamented about that on here because it's so difficult to find one now. I mean, that, that doesn't stop fucking Randy the Ram from in 2008 thinking that people are going to willingly buy his VHS tapes, which that's the, the beginning of his issues as far as failure to adapt. 2008 didn't have a fucking cell phone. Did you know anybody at that point in time that didn't have a cell phone? I mean, at the bottom end of that ladder would be people with flip phones. But still, mm -hmm. that was a phone. A sailor yeah, I had a friend, phone. JP, who didn't get a phone until like 2000, maybe 2008. I just remember going to pick him up at the airport in the late 2000s, and it was a fucking nightmare because he didn't have a phone. So just having to like find him somewhere. So <laughs> he, kept he, probably relates, <laughs> he probably relates to Randy the Ram on a, a very primal level. Julio, 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was nearly universally loved i think one of the two percent is vince mcmahon because i know he didn't care for it <laughs> really uh, <laughs> i think his thought was it was too bleak which is hilarious i would have thought that his problem was that he couldn't see he couldn't find it the vince mcmahon character in there <laughs> i am i supposed to be mickey rourke 98 <laughs> percent. what were these people saying they obviously loved it uh, oh, man. Lots of quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. Most of them fresh. I'm going to share a handful with you right now. Starting with uh, Matthew Lucas from The Dispatch, Lexington, North Carolina, who says, Rourke has risen again and delivered a performance for the ages. I'm going to be honest with you, Alex. I was not aware when I watched it that I was witnessing, I guess, a, a comeback. You know, I was. I think that the, the heyday of Mickey Rourke was before my time, or at least before mm -hmm. my time as a cinephile. So to me, the wrestler was not the magical experience that it, I guess, was for people who had followed Mickey Rourke from the beginning of his career and then saw him disappear and then come back, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, to me, that's like, doesn't have anything to do with the movie. You shouldn't say, oh, it's a great movie because it gave us Mickey Rourke back. Uh, no. <laughs> It can still be a bad movie that just happens to have Mickey Rourke in it acting again. 
uh, Christopher Runyon from Movie Mezzanine says, Darren Aronofsky's filmmaking in The Wrestler is the most subtle and nuanced he's ever done. Uh, he says subtle and nuanced. I say boring. This is the most <laughs> boring Darren Aronofsky's ever been. And we'll talk about that soon. There wasn't even a lesbian love scene in this. I think his least liked movie is Noah. And that one had stone angels. That's, there's nothing here in The Wrestler that matches that. And finally, Matt Brunson from Creative Loafing says, It lines up nicely with my only other four-star pictures of 2008, Milk and the Dark Knight, collectively presenting a portrait of the uncertain, often unhappy America in which we presently reside. If he thought that America was unhappy in 2008, I wonder what Matt Brunson thinks in 2021. Uh, but do you do you agree with this, Alex? Does it line up nicely with Milk and the Dark Knight? Uh, I suppose. I mean, 2008 was a fucking blessed year of cinema. Are we lining it up just in the sense of a good movie? Or is he doing like the was it Spring Breakers, Pain and Gain and Wolf of Wall Street together? In uh, what is that, 2013? <laughs> like the, the collapse of the American dream type thing? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Unhappiness in America. Go. Milk. <laughs> <laughs> Dark Knight and The Wrestler. It's it's an eclectic group, but I guess, I don't know. I would argue the fighting they did was very real, whereas in this, it's predetermined bullshit. You know, Harvey Milk is, is murdered. Harvey Dent sacrifices himself. But Randy and the Ram, what does he do at the end? We don't even know. It, it's, it doesn't even have to, the movie doesn't have the courage to show us what happens at the end. If this was a WCW pay-per-view in 1998, a similar thing happened where the feed cut out before the main event, so they had to refund everybody that bought it. So, I mean, that... <laughs> Where's my refund I, for I, the wrestler? <laughs> I know. I don't know if the Ayatollah or Randy the Ram fucking won. I don't care about your artsy bullshit. I need to know if the baby face got his comeuppance or not. Especially because, gotta tell you, uh, it didn't look good. Uh, for, for the Ram? For the Ram, yeah. yes. <laughs> I mean, going again to the hilarious ways that modern wrestling tries to portray it as being safe it's still an industry that an old man with a clear fresh heart bypass scar on his chest can yeah get out there main event i mean that's still the fucking what it is now still trot out all the old fuckers when they need them the wrestler begins we get a montage and kind of just in a collection of the wrestler magazine uh i'm sure there's some pro wrestling illustrated in there some old posters and we're led to believe that uh Randy the Ram Robinson was a star on on par with Hulk Hogan back in the 80s. Uh, we see these posters of him working Madison Square Garden on top. Uh, we get some like sound bites of different radio calls or you know commentary back in his day. Smash cut to present day, and it is not all that it once was. Coming 20 years later, still he's jamming uh, Bang Your Head or Metal Health. In the circles of wrestling already, this starts with a ripoff. Because the notorious, infamous pro wrestling video game Showdown Legends of Wrestling, the opening video package is set to bang your head. <laughs> so that's like immediately what came to mind for me is they, they ripped off Acclaim shit. And I'm sure if Acclaim would have still been in business in 2008, they could have had some legal recourse on their hand. 20 years later, it's the Ram old in a looks like a middle school gymnasium, maybe a church gymnasium. Julio, I can tell you that every venue that wrestling is depicted in in this movie, I have been to a comparable show. 
<laughs> and this one right here, I was at a venue several years ago that looked exactly like this that Samoa Joe wrestled Keith Lee at in the main event, and there was maybe 40 people there. See, so that's but, where I'm at. <laughs> right. But you come at it that way. To me, based on my limited experience, just the depiction of wrestling from the get-go here, it was just so much less glamorous than what we've seen in Ready to Rumble and No Holds Barred. Uh, so I guess maybe in a way those movies spoiled me and I was just ready to have a good time, have fun with the with the the costumes and the and the music and just the oversized personalities. I was not prepared for this grim, grimy, gritty, miserable depiction of of a sport that generally seems like it's a good time for everybody involved. So <laughs> From the first five minutes, I'm already resenting the movie because this is not what what I signed up for. It, we went it, from Hulk Hogan teaching his brother how to walk again <laughs> to this old man being shortchanged on his you know expected payday because the gate wasn't high enough. Yeah, and he just looks so tired and so just joyless. The the whole thing, you know, it's like why do we wrestle and why do we watch wrestling? It's just to lift our spirits, not to just be bummed about the fact that Mickey Rourke can barely hack it. He goes out and he does the classic wrestling veteran thing where there's a couple fans waiting around to get his autograph and just, <laughs> just growls and signs it for him. <laughs> Been there, brother. Signing uh, them? Right, running into a wrestler like that, uh, Greg Valentine. I remember like meeting him somewhere and just asking for a picture and he didn't even fucking say anything to me. He just kind of put his arm around me and, and then move move right along. And we see why they're such miserable fucks. They're such curmudgeons. That's the whole thing. The The ones that have gone on to more successful lives or have retired and been able to live comfortably, That they're the nicest ones. Stone Cold Steve Austin's the biggest star in the history of wrestling. He's a generally nice guy in life. That's because he doesn't have to fucking work church rec rooms on the weekend and get shortchanged <laughs> by Judah Friedlander. <laughs> Well, but see, that's that's the thing. Like, I, I again, maybe I'm just a victim of of the media and what's popular. But to me, when you tell me that I'm watch, I'm watching the wrestler, what do I think of? Yeah, someone called Steve Austin, The Rock, John Cena. Y- you know, those guys that look like they have their shit together. And instead, you give me Mickey Rourke, who gets locked out of his house. His it's not even a house. I guess what his unit uh, has to sleep in his car. Doesn't even have a place to take a shower. I don't know. It just looks weird. It was such a bummer. And of course, it made me think, why would you make this movie? And how is this movie good for business as far as wrestling goes, right? How is this movie going to get you excited to go see a wrestling match? Or even more so, excited to become a wrestler? I don't know. You know, the last couple episodes we've been joking about how uh, uh, the Vegas, the Nevada Tourism uh, Board would be upset about the way that Vegas is depicted, you know, in uh, Indecent Proposal and Showgirls. But this is, like, wouldn't the Wrestling Federation be mad about the way that wrestling is portrayed in The Wrestler? I guess that's why uh, Vince McMahon didn't like it. I believe that Vince doesn't know this is what happens when he kicks people to the curb. I I believe that much of it. And he saw this and he's like, what the fuck is this talking about? It's like, I'm doing fine. Yeah, it it definitely turns a mirror on the industry to... uh, Varying degrees of acceptance from those within it, as we'll discuss in the second portion of the podcast. Aronofsky, subtlety is not his key. Uh, It's not his favorite play as Mickey Rourke leaving this venue, just blaring, uh, don't know what you got till it's gone by Cinderella in his car. (laughs) And 
as you mentioned, lives at a trailer home. Blink and you'll miss him. We have uh, his landlord, uh, Mark uh, Margolis, who I can't remember his name on Breaking Bad, but he's the dude. Steel. That, uh, that's right. Who Who's the... Um, fuck. His name's on the tip of my tongue. Who is it that he helps kill? Who's the, the bad guy in the uh, first few seasons? Gus Fring. Gus. That's his name. Yeah. Uh, nowhere near the amount of action from Mr. Margolis in The Wrestler. He tells uh, Randy just to kind of fuck off and pay him because he gets locked out. He got Randy, more to do at uh, uh, end of days. He did. That he did. Randy, a complete egomaniac. His old van just lined with pictures and posters of himself. I read that the body used for him like his 80s pictures and those magazine covers was actually a professional wrestler by the name of Lex Luger the total package who really um, from what Mickey looked like in the movie you could definitely see him looking like that you know 20 years prior so I thought that was a nice touch do you think that guy goes and tells his friends like I'm the wrestler that's my body no, I don't. Lex is paralyzed now, and I'm pretty sure all he really tells people is how good God is and how blessed he is to have the life that he's had. But back in the day, he was a fucking Adonis. We find out that Randy has a shoot job, and Randy has a shoot name too, Robin Ramzinski, but he always corrects people to call him Randy the Ram. Now, Julio, I'm sure you know this because like Slash, you know, there are some people that have had success in real walks of life that have a gimmick name. Uh wrestlers a lot of the time become so enveloped in that that I'm sure it doesn't surprise you to hear they either insist on you calling them their gimmick name or they just won't answer to their shoot name <laughs> um there's been a few wrestlers that I'm fans of and have seen enough times and like hung around enough that they've told me what their they've introduced themselves to me under their real name and I can get away with calling them that but for the majority of wrestlers uh, especially from the era that Randy came from, you're going to be calling him by their work name. So um, as I'm sure you notice, he corrects everyone that calls him Robin. That's pretty crazy because you just you just drew a parallel between his character and Marisa Tomei's stripper. She won't respond to her, like she won't tell her real name to anybody, but then it's special with uh, Randy the Ram because he knows that her real name is Pam. Yeah, her, her, her name. work name is Cassidy and her yeah. shoot name is Pam in yeah. this. He works at a local grocery store and helps stock. He doesn't do anything customer-facing, so I can sympathize with him on that front because it's really overrated. Uh, and he only works weekdays. He has his boss who looked familiar to me. He looked like the discount version of the boss in Fight Club. And same attitude because he's also a dick. But <laughs> Todd Berry is his name. Of the, of the wrestler, actor? Yeah. Todd Berry is not in Fight Club. Todd Spin City is what I know him from. Todd Berry That's, wishes trying... he was in Fight Club. <laughs> and he's like 98% of people in the world that once he hears about pro wrestling, he's like, oh, that fake shit? That's basically where he goes to immediately. And so he's constantly belittling Randy uh, Robin for his chosen profession. And with, the reason I bring this up, the shoot job and everything, is because we get the, the Aronofsky shot that I talk about every time we bring him up, the tracking shot from behind somebody. Black Swan, Requiem for a Dream. It's all there. It's Pie. it's his go-to. You know, like it's kind of like a Hitchcock focus pull or um, the De Palma 
the force perspective shot. This is like Aronofsky's go-to and he gets it out of the way quickly or so you'd think because it fucking comes back up a million times. Yeah, there's a different, oh, there's a fine line between uh, having a go-to and having a crutch and I think that Aronofsky, especially in this case, it's just, it's a crutch uh, because he's telling such a mundane story in the universe of Aronofsky's movies where it's basically, even when it's something somewhat uh, down to earth, like let's say Requiem for a Dream, right? It's, uh, well, that's about drug addiction and just addiction in general. There's nothing uh, supernatural or super weird about it, but it's still the way that it's shot and the way that the energy that it has is just, it keeps you hooked. It, there's none of that here, uh, which is why I, I refer to it as a, kind of a disappointment in Aronofsky's filmography as far as uh, just how you experience it as a movie. It doesn't feel like a Darren Aronofsky movie. So, of course, when he runs out of things to do, he just has to rely on on, on his crutch, which is like the, the tracking shot. If, if nothing else, I think he needed to rely even more on his other crutches, right? You know, the way that he edits things in, in his other movies and the soundtrack choices. Uh, I wish that he had worked even harder into giving us a typical Aronofsky movie. <laughs> but instead, we get caught with this in-between where it kind of like, you can see why how it was directed by him, but it doesn't feel like a movie directed by him. And uh, that just sucks. It's the weekend, so Randy's got a match. It's like a... VFW all or something, which are really popular in the indie scene specifically at that point in time and still hold up to today. Uh, we get a couple wrestler sightings in the locker room, specifically DJ Hyde. The fact that that fucking losers in this movie is quite funny. <laughs> Any wrestling fans listening likely know how big of a dork DJ Hyde is. Uh, and if you're at all curious and you're not a wrestling fan, there's a vice documentary on CZW that DJ Hyde is, he owns that company now. I'm not sure if he did when this movie was made, but it just shows a window into how big of a mark that guy is. It's quite entertaining. And Sabian in the background later became known as black G's, uh, a real wrestling locker room. Not a bunch of nerds sitting around talking about video games. Like it is now guys talking about, Fucking work in the leg, work in the neck, everyone talking to each other to make sure no one's doing the same shit, which is just such a massive issue with wrestling today. So it was refreshing to see this. But then, like, mm-hmm. Randy comes in and he- I don't know, man. I, 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 again, we experienced this movie differently because you, to me, this was just demystifying something that I didn't need demystified. I like the magic of not knowing how the sausage is made when it comes to wrestling. Fair enough. I just go there and I see things happen and I can tell myself that this was all spontaneous, that this was just these were like athletes playing jazz on on stage and just kind of (laughs) reacting and feeding off each other in the moment. When you show me that they're in the locker room pre-planning this shit, it just takes away from it. It just it suddenly it just feels well, well, now it feels fake. You know, I'll go in knowing that. Okay, they already know who's going to win, right? I can handle that. Mm-hmm. But don't show me that they just went step by step and they figure out like the twists and turns of the match because now, now I'm just like, what's the point? It's like going to watch improv comedy and then finding out that the, the comedians had actually written a script beforehand. That's not what I signed up for. And so I don't need a movie that takes away the magic from wrestling, from professional wrestling. I guess because you're more into the, into the world I guess you already know it, so it doesn't hit you as hard. But to me, it was just, it was such a bummer. And I just kind of, I wanted to cover my ears and just go like, let's move on to the fight. And I can try to pretend that I don't know that this was all planned. On top of that, 
during our marriage story episode, you were criticizing Noah Baumbach for <laughs> all the insider lingo and just how you could tell that the the directors, like maybe Baumbach himself, was just like patting himself on the back because he was throwing in this uh, these references to the world of you know L.A. and whatever. And here's the same thing, man. I just when they say what did they call the last match, or it might have been a previous scene, but they call it the the strap. They say, "Oh yeah, for that, referring to the title." Oh, so that's what I didn't know what the strap was, and I was like, mm-hmm. I just it infuriated me because I'm like, okay, they put that line there just for for the people that know what the strap is, so they can go like, oh yeah, I know, and I feel so like uh, so important because I'm part of this little circle of the audience that knows what the strap is. I didn't know what the strap Hell was. Yeah. There weren't nobody told me, nobody explained it. There wasn't. You know what this movie needed? If you're gonna go that way, then just have somebody that's new to the world of wrestling and he's just tagging along shadowing randy the ram and that way every time that <laughs> some of these things pop up mickey Rourke could turn to it could be the kid that he plays video games with you know he could turn to the kid and be like oh the strap is the title or just like uh, a pop-up video type movie where it just explains like when words come about just bloop, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. what does working the leg mean well to have a pop-up of i don't know hulk hogan <laughs> explaining i'm so far gone you say stuff like that and then it makes me realize that i'm weird for just moving so far past that <laughs> like when something like that is said i just i know exactly what it means in my brain like i keep going so hearing a normal person like you say like i need that explained to me it makes me realize how far into the shit i am <laughs> and like how i'm not coming back out <laughs> i'm too far gone <laughs> They have uh, Randy come in. He's the you know the star of the show, and they accommodate him with his own private dressing room, which is just a fucking broom closet. Uh, he meets his opponent Tommy Rotten and explains, you know, you got a lot of potential. And uh, myself and our friend Reed got some mileage out of the exchange here because he says the people who drive Cadillacs is how he refers to people that work in the WWE. And so since then, from time to time, we'll refer to WWE employees as Cadillac drivers. <laughs> A, jo- a joke that, you know, for two people. He has a match with Tommy Rotten. Uh, Tommy Rotten was an independent wrestler, and not as the Tommy Rotten character, but the gentleman who played him. I'm blanking on his name, but he was a worker in the uh, Northeast. It's a pretty standard match. The Ram gets a good ovation. I think the thing everyone remembers from this particular scene is <laughs> Mickey Rourke's blade job. Uh, I have seen some pretty obvious blade jobs in my day with the amount of shows that I've attended and the varying degrees of good that I've seen. I'm not sure I've ever seen such a labored, drawn out, just blatant <laughs> blade job. Typically, a guy will get in the corner um, I mean, a classic one is you powder to the outside and then you roll your head under the ring apron because then you can just fucking hack and slash and then you come back up and it's like the reveal here. Randy's just in the middle of the ring, slowly takes his tape off, takes the blade out and then, you know, just slowly ever so slightly cuts his forehead, which props to him, though. You know, he actually did that. Uh, it looked like it. <laughs> and now that you've told me the, the budget of the movie. Yeah, I imagine they didn't have. The special effects. I don't have the budget for to fake it. So I'm pretty sure that all the blood in the movie, and there's quite a bit of it, probably belongs to Mickey Rourke. Speaking of blood, yeah, we'll get to Necro and his match with the Ram a little bit later. Uh, yeah, if I remember correctly, it was something to do with, like, it was in the script. Mickey didn't want to do it, and then he did, and he was going back and forth in it, and Aronofsky just kind of basically talked him into it. It's a good blade job. He clearly had a few beers and took some Tylenol before the match because he starts pouring hot pretty uh, pretty quickly. Like, if the venue's cold and guys blade, 
nothing's going to happen. So if you're hoping for, you know, the proverbial crimson mask as a wrestler, you want the venue to be hot, have some booze, take some Tylenol, get the blood good and thinned and revved up and you'll be good to go. Works works for uh, erections and works for blade jobs. But yeah, Bret Hart, he is not. He, he does not have the grace and, you know, dignity of one of the great cutters in wrestling history. About as obvious doing it as Ric Flair was back in his day. But that's the thing. Is it supposed to be obvious? Like, because that's what I thought. I'm like, okay, I'll give the movie the benefit of the doubt. Maybe the whole point is that it's supposed to be obvious. But then nobody called him out on it. And no. so I'm like, okay, well, that sucks then. <laughs> The original idea behind blading was to give the impression that it was a real fight because you're really pouring hot, real blood. And that's a common misconception with wrestling uh, to the general public is I heard this so many times growing up and I still do. It's not blood capsules 99% of the time. Like Onita will use a blood capsule, but he's a, a special kind of dude. But yeah, it's taking the blade and running it. But the idea is to make it seem authentic and realistic and spontaneous. That's why... It's also not uh, not cyanide capsules. It's just heart attacks. No. Man, when I would be at shows and catch someone blading, I'd be such a fucking cunt about it. I'd be like, not too deep. Uh, I would say <laughs> but that's what I mean. You know, See, I thought that that was the point of the movie. I thought that the point of the movie was that... Uh, Aronofsky was shooting in a way that to show us that Randy the Ram is so over the hill that he can't even blade properly, and so somebody <laughs> was going to somebody was going to call him out on it. You know, either a, a member of the audience or one of the other wrestlers, or maybe after the fight, somebody was going to be like, "Hey, man, you kind of fucked up there." But no, nothing. By the time it's over, everybody talks about it like it was a great match. There are varying styles of blading, too, and he just went for the classic Shawn Michaels straight straight across. Some people have said, Tommy Dreamer said, poke and twist, avoid scar tissue building up. You just take the razor, poke and twist, poke and twist. I mean, I, I know you're enthralled here by the varying degrees of blading. But I can't wait to get to the varying degrees of stapling. Presentation's fairly legit. Most guys would carry it on their wrist tape, or the ref would have it handed off. As I mentioned, Bret Hart, one of the greatest bladers of all time, he carried the blade in his mouth. Uh, that way, when the time came, he would be on the outside and just kind of spit it out and use it that way. And Brett was a master because there's no match where you will ever find Bret Hart laying on his back in the middle of the ring, slowly taking a blade and running it across his forehead. <laughs> At this show, uh, the Ram is approached about a 20-year rematch with the Ayatollah. I mean, this is the parallel universe version of Hulk Hogan versus the Iron Sheik. It's been 20 years since their showdown at the Garden. They want to rehash that uh, at an upcoming Ring of Honor show. Uh, and this is... Obviously, the Rams in. This uh, could be his ticket back to the top, as he says. As he actually tells, uh, leading into our next scene, Marissa Tomei, who we already talked about, has a work name and shoot name in this movie. She plays um, a stripper that works at the appropriately titled Cheeks Strip Club. Um, <laughs> and sadly, is really Randy's only source of companionship in the world okay thank god uh, i thought you were gonna say sadly that's not marissa tomei doing the dancing and i'm like i can't handle that alex you already broke my heart when you told me it was a body double for kyle mclaughlin and showgirls i <laughs> can only take so much yeah um, no and i was actually i mean i'm sorry but it's just human nature i was kind of like looking for the cuts to see if that was her really dancing or not and i couldn't find any i think that's her they didn't have the budget to CGI her her face on a stripper's body, so no, I'm pretty sure that's her. Honestly, Mickey Rourke going to wrestling school for this, and her going to train, uh, you know, take some stripping classes. They're really not too far off from one another, so <laughs> they they may have gone together. Who knows? 
the same church, just separate uh, auditoriums, separate rooms. <laughs> yes. The whole Marisa Tomei angle in the story, this is probably the most unrealistic, the most fantastical element in the movie. Because they, I love Marisa Tomei, but you cannot sell Marisa Tomei to me as a failed stripper. And that's what they're trying to do here. That Our introduction to Marisa Tomei is three dudes that are making fun of her because she's too old. And they, yeah. they're refusing having a lap dance from her. Come on now. <laughs> I mean, that's more fake than anything that happens in the wrestling matches. I, I couldn't buy it at all. And it's not even that one scene. There's other sequences in the movie where Marissa Tomei is just kind of hanging out there. Nobody's bothering her. <laughs> She's the one stripper that's not that's not having success in that strip club. Never. Yeah, they they try to present this like she's the the puppy that never gets picked, and it's like, come the fuck on, look at her. <laughs> Aunt May, come on. And Mickey Rourke has to like defend her honor. She's hot. Look at her. Yeah, I know. I'm looking at her right now. It's working out pretty well. But you know, typical wrestler fashion. Even when they're together, he can't help but talk about himself and his matches. And he's just one shot away from getting the call from Vince. But yeah, this exists to establish that she's really the only source of companionship that he has, as I had said earlier. Speaking of companionship, though, the man has his gimmicks. As famously said, uh, the boys need their candies. And the Ram stocks up at his gym. It looks like a fellow professional wrestler just is able to kind of give him just the whole the, the whole pharmacy. And we see him actually shooting up with, uh, I'm assuming those are roids, whatever it is, to keep him in physical shape. Famous story told by Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. They both told a similar story. The details are a little bit different, but there's this wrestler named The Warlord in the 80s and 90s. And um, similar to this, a lot of the wrestlers would shoot themselves in the ass when they needed their juice. Uh, but a lot of times the boys helped each other out with it because they were so fucking big. You know, they can't reach around that far. The, as the story goes... Warlord came up to Shawn Michaels with a loaded syringe and said, I need you to shoot me. Shawn went to shoot him in it and couldn't get the plunger down. Like he tried to push and it wouldn't go in. Uh, and then like pulls it out and just stuff burbles out of the hole in the warlord's ass. And then according to legend, he turned to warlord and he goes, brother, I think you're full. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's more interesting than anything that happens in this movie. Uh, <laughs> my only note is Mickey Rourke ass, old Mickey Rourke ass. And he smacks it for us, too. <laughs> yes. He's being a bad boy. <laughs> he needs all the fucking painkillers he can get because it's time to enter the Necro Butcher, which well, I assume I've kind of already killed any potential question regarding this, but the gentleman he wrestles in the death match is, was a professional wrestler by the name of the Necro Butcher, who in 2009 would have been right towards the tail end of basically his big run. And for like a minute, man, the Necro Butcher was... Wrestling fans today do not know what it was like to have a Necro Butcher. That dude was fucking crazy, and in an environment of wrestling fans that all knew it was fake bullshit, you were still scared of the Necro Butcher. So, so he's dude, playing himself in this movie? Correct, yeah. And he never really cut promos, so I don't think I heard his voice for like the first two years I watched him. So when you hear him talk, and I, since I've... I've had many beers with the Necro Butcher and talked about wrestling with him, and he's a wonderfully nice guy. Sadly, he turned into a MAGA chud, but he's a pro wrestler, so I don't expect him to be very intelligent to begin with. Um, but when you hear his voice, it kind of tapers off the impression. But, man, the Necro Butcher, I had been to some shows he worked where he would just run out and start throwing chairs everywhere and shit. 
I mean, you haven't really been. You can't consider your, yourself a wrestling fan if you haven't been to a show where at some point you were worried for your safety, and no one really brought that air of potential danger quite like Necro did. I know the overwhelming majority of our listeners are not wrestling fans, but if you have a spare fifteen minutes, go to YouTube, search Samoa Joe versus Necro Butcher. That's one of the most insane spectacles you will ever see. And the tie-in to that is. That match happened in the same arena that this is filmed in, this scene here. So you're going to say, if you have a spare 15 minutes, go go to a wrestling match in person for 15 minutes. Wear your mask, though. I cannot in good conscience recommend anyone attend a professional wrestling event. Uh, <laughs> not Like, pandemic aside, it like everything is so bad right now that I, I could not do that. Seeing Necro on the big screen was so fucking weird because he was not... In the WWE, he was just an independent wrestler. He wrestled for fucking CZW and XCW. And so seeing him here and having dialogue and explaining the shit that is going to happen in this death match that him and Randy have uh, in the ECW arena, one of the most famous venues in all of professional wrestling. It's very dark because they filmed part of the match with the crowd there and then part of it without the crowd. So they just kept the lights off. CZW, Combat Zone Wrestling. It's a new day and a new era in wrestling. And one of the first things my mom asked me about when she saw this movie was, do matches like that really happen? Oh. So Julio, as, <laughs> as much as you know about wrestling from me, from going off of like our youths, seeing Hulk Hogan, giving some guy a big boot. But that's the thing. And I ended up <laughs> <laughs> going to the Necro Butcher, breaking light tubes, using a staple gun. It's a, a jarring experience, and I don't think Aronofsky did a good enough job of preparing the audience for what was coming. Well, not at all. Going back to my original point, this is a problem. Darren Aronofsky is assuming that the majority of the audience watching The Wrestler is going to be wrestling fans. And that's not mm -hmm. the case. You have Mickey Rourke fans. You have mostly uh, Darren Aronofsky fans. You have people that heard that Marisa Tomei was going to be playing a stripper. Like, I don't know how many actual wrestling fans were watching The Wrestler to begin with. And so, yeah, he, he fails to really explain. For all the explaining he does, he doesn't really, like, prepare you, like you said, to just the, the, the amount of gore that goes on in this supposedly realistic version of wrestling. I Honestly, to me, like, watching it as somebody who's not in the biz and somebody who has watched, like, a handful of... Uh, pro wrestling movies it just felt fake it just went through the looking glass and now i'm like there is no way how could you how could anyone allow this to happen where uh these men are actively torturing themselves and somebody could get killed i mean it was pretty far-reaching to begin with but the moment that mickey rourke grabs a fan's uh prosthetic leg to beat necro that was just what is this a Mel Brooks movie? I mean, that, that it just I couldn't. I, I had a hard time taking it seriously. I couldn't believe that that was. It, it, but they're trying to sell it to you straight. Even worse, the worst part is the pretension. Uh, he he can't tell you the story linearly for some reason, and only in this sequence. Yes, Aronofsky decides that he is like he watched Pulp Fiction, and he was like, "Oh, that's a cool trick," and so he decides to. <laughs> constantly go back he was 90 percent done with the movie and then he watched pulp fiction and he's like oh i've got this last scene to edit so let's 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 have some fun with the timetable here yeah let's play with it he keeps going back and forth and was like just show me what's happening and tell me like it already feels fake before he even starts messing with the chronology so i, I it didn't work for me at all and i could only imagine how it would have worked or how little it would have worked for somebody who hasn't watched 
any wrestling movies ever. And before we move on, Julio, I invite you to consider that the spot where he took the fan's leg and hit him with it was based on something that really happened in that arena. Of course it did. <laughs> Tommy Dreamer, ECW. It was a different time. Shockingly, the match goes wrong. Uh, oh, real quick, before the Ram collapses under his own, uh, hoisted by his own petard, or in this case, light tubes, we, uh, for wrestling fans, you got to pay close attention because we get a shot of Adam Cole, baby, as the Ram goes back through the locker room. This is young boy Adam Cole. He's got like a fucking, that 2008 haircut, the emo shit. He doesn't have his beard. He doesn't look anything like you would expect him to look today, but this is when he was still a young boy training in CZW. Um, Adam Cole is a WWE wrestler now. That's pretty high profile. So seeing him like as the trainee here is quite humorous. Does he have a line? And then or we, is he just, uh. He walks by. I think he just pats him on the back. He's like, good job, Ram. He doesn't eat the scenery up like he does now. <laughs> and the Ram gets back to the locker room. And I have in my notes, Nate Hatred is one of the wrestlers that greets him back there. Just felt relevant to take note of that because he's dead now because that's what happens to these fuckers. They use him up and then they spit him out. It's like a matrix, really. It may be hard to believe, but this old fucker can't do death matches with the Necro Butcher. You know, he can do his kind of like OO spot match with Tommy Rotten, but he tries to do this. And I guess, does he have a heart attack? Do they ever actually call out what happened? It leads to him needing an emergency bypass. So I assume he has like a catastrophic heart attack. Yeah, I assume there was a heart attack. No, actually, he he tells Marisa Tomei later. He says, I had a heart yes, attack. Yes, yes, so, yes, yes, so, yes, yeah. yes, yes. That's right. And that's what he, when he accosts uh, Evan Rachel Wood, he tells her that too. Mm -hmm. But he just collapses, and then he wakes up, and he's been given a bypass. He's got this big fucking scar on his chest. That's pretty uh, crazy, right? Very... That, they, that's, that was my, my main thought. It's like, oh, they can do that without your consent? I mean, I guess they can. <laughs> now, I mean, my second thought the was- The big like, reveal was they were in Canada. <laughs> yeah. So like, how is he going to pay for that? Thanks, Obama. <laughs> Packs up and leaves. His gear has been cut up. I mean, that's as a wrestler, you're only as good as your gear, and they had to cut it off of him. So now he's got to get new fucking gear, which in his case ain't cheap. It took me a while to figure out what he was staring at and why he was staring at for so long. And then I, eventually I pieced it together because Aronofsky gave me plenty of time. It's like at least, I don't know, full minute and a half of Mickey Rourke rummaging through his bag and looking at these tights. And then, so it's not just that it was dirty with vomit and blood, it's that they cut it up. Yeah, they cut it off him when he got there. I don't know if it was meant to, uh, but it very closely mirrors a very tragic story about Bret Hart when his brother passed away, being mailed his brother's perishables, and part of it was his ring gear that was cut off of him and was bloodied like that. Jesus. Um, that could, yeah, that could just be a total coincidence. It's like the thing where uh, his daughter in the movie is named Stephanie. Vince McMahon's daughter's name is Stephanie. I don't know if there's any like validity to the, uh, if it's just a coincidence, but there's a couple things in the movie like that I took note of. This doctor, he felt, like he's, he's, he's an okay actor, but uh, he looked so out of place in this world that I I instantly identified myself with him. <laughs> he's all clean cut and looks like, you know, he's he probably leads a, a normal life once he leaves that room. And uh, contrasted with, with Mickey Rourke and how he's just... Rourke is... I, I don't know. You know, I know about method acting and all that stuff. But he, it's like watching two different, completely different worlds side by side. And I was like, hey, can we can we hang out with the doctor a little longer? Because this movie is just bringing me down too hard. Can, can we get some normalcy in here, please? Something to balance it out. 
They're like, nope. You get an old Nintendo game. Uh, yes. And as he leaves the hospital in a bit of straight from the shitty indie wrestler playbook, which I'm sure has happened on multiple occasions, the promoter leaves his pay with the the basically where he gets discharged with a note that says something like you're a beast or you're an animal and then tells him like when the next booking is. Oh, that was his pay. See, I was giving them too much credit. I thought that that was some extra money that everybody had collected for him. Oh, Julio, <laughs> God bless your naivety. <laughs> like I said, the the way people try to present the wrestling industry now is being, you know, better and they're taking care of each other. They'll still slit each other's throats for a payday. So he, he probably shorted him five. <laughs> But Randy gets out. He goes back, as you mentioned, um, he's convalescing and ends up kind of hanging out with one of the uh, children in the trailer park. The real significance of this is that he still has a Nintendo and he's playing Ram Jam or Ram Fest or whatever the game was. It's basically a mod of the WrestleMania for the NES. Mm -hmm. So, again, there's kind of Easter eggs thrown in here for wrestling fans, and that's one of them. I'm Sure, someone on set had a great time making a mod for this. But this, again, just shows how, you know, no cell phone, no internet, uh, a refusal to adapt because this kid's talking about Call of Duty and he has no idea what he's talking about. In today's society, you have to be willfully ignorant to not know what Call of Duty is. He goes to see Pam Cassidy, explains the situation. She is trying to be comforting, but at the same time, keeping him at arm's length because he's a customer. And basically just tells him, hey, you should see your daughter. Maybe she can help you and, you know, make some of this better. Enter the Jake the Snake portion of this film. Uh, Julio, <laughs> have you ever heard of a documentary called Beyond the Mat? I mean, I've talked about You've it. You've told so me sure about it, have. yeah. Yeah. So this entire, like, portion of the movie is basically a direct lift uh, from Barry Blostein's 1999 all-time great documentary Beyond the Mat where Jake the Snake Roberts is a broken down piece of meat, much like the Ram and tries to make amends with his daughter. And it goes just terribly, even down to the thing of like his Jake, the snake's daughter uh, is it's never called out in this movie, but she's a lesbian also. So contrarian's corner, real talk, whatever the case that there's legitimacy to the fact that Darren Aronofsky probably got to this point in the script and was like, Hmm. And then just copied off of Blostein's homework. <laughs> it was like, this, so this will do the trick. Yeah. He, he knew the ending. And he had written all the way up to the heart attack. And he's like, fuck, that's only an hour of movie. <laughs> I need to, I need a second act. So he goes and sees his daughter, Stephanie, played by Evan Rachel Wood. And it does not go well. She really wants nothing to do with him. Uh, I mean, he takes it okay. It's kind of like you're watching it. And you're like, well, what did you expect? You clearly weren't there for her at all, ever. Yeah, and it, but it's also just so one note. Evan Rachel Wood is a great actress. I'm a big fan. And... Maybe that adds to my disappointment that you would get Evan Rachel Wood for a part and then just ask her to play angry daughter through her three or four scenes. She she doesn't really get to leave that register for most of the movie. The problem is that when you meet her, you first meet her, she's really mad at him and she cusses him out. And So then later in the movie, when she gets mad at him again, I was like, oh, well, I already saw that. I, I wish that the relationship had gone through more stages, right? I, imagine that, you know, he meets her and yeah, she she's mad they, at him. Yeah, they started like on the, the mountaintop. There exactly. was nowhere to go after where they started. Yeah, I mean, she she can be mad at him, but she doesn't have to blow up at him, right? Maybe she just kind of ignores him and walks away. Or or she she talks to him, but you can tell that she doesn't trust him or whatever. And then, and then she trusts him and then he 
disappoints her again and then she gets mad like imagine how much more impact we that scene would have had if we'd never seen her blow up and then we see her blow up but as it was it was like evan rachel wood comes into the movie at 11 and stays at 11 the entire time so by the time that uh, her big scene her big oscar clip comes i was already tuned out uh, which is a shame because, like I said, I like her as an actress. Seeing that it's not going to go too well with his daughter, he just kind of goes back to all he knows, and that is pro wrestling, where he attends a Legends convention. Man, this shit is bleak. Now, while I personally have never attended something like this, um, I know those things happen all the time in different parts of the country um, where it's like five tables. And I would say the ones I have been to, like Legends conventions and shit, have a bit more glamour to them. Uh, I've been to <laughs> they sell like DVDs, WrestleMania. not VHS. Yeah, they, they sell DVDs. People are still coherent. They're not asleep at their tables. The ones I've been to uh, in Dallas or New Orleans, uh, Orlando, it's a bit more uplifting than this is. But like I said, there's still shit like this, and you see wrestlers like this all about and of course the promoter of it is scummy judah freelander uh, a legitimate wrestling fan so not surprising that he shows up here does the part to look really scummy and like a wrestling promoter so uh props to him for that okay so you haven't been to a convention that's exactly like this but you've been to conventions where you've like bought somebody's vhs tapes or you've like gotten a, a picture taken with with some of these guys oh yeah but so you don't know for a fact that it ever gets as bad as the movie shows you. Could, could it be that Aronofsky is exaggerating a little bit for dramatic purpose? Yeah, when I say that it, these happen, I mean in the sense of the scale. There's definitely conventions like this, quote-unquote, that have just like five people there. Uh, I don't know if anyone's fucking colostomy bags ever been hanging out or <laughs> you know, to the just depths of despair that Aronofsky takes this. I, I, I think he might have just hammed it up a little bit too much. Hamming it up in a pro wrestling movie. Imagine that. What do you make of Marissa Tomei here, Cassidy, Pam, what have you? Do you think she actually cares about him? Because she begins helping him out with trying to make amends with his daughter. Or do you think that she's just so annoyed by him that she's trying to get him to leave her alone? I, I actually think that she... And I wish the movie was clear about this. Because this is a, 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 an aspect of the movie that could have really made it a greater film if they'd focused on it. Right? That The... the the Marisa Tomei as a stripper angle. So they establish that she's hurting for money. She's not a successful stripper. Who knows why? But that's the only person that pays her attention is Mickey Rourke. And they have this very, I would think, telling shot, right? Where she's surveying the bar. Nobody's looking at her. And then she looks back at Mickey Rourke, the one guy that idolizes her. And she's like, well, I had to pay rent somehow. And then she goes and talks to him. <laughs> He's like, hey, do you want me to take you shopping? So... To me, that was setting up something pretty awesome, which was that this this woman, out of desperation, is going to prey on the one guy that actually seems to care for her, that doesn't see her as just a dancer past her prime. Like that that's bleak, but that is like real bleak. That's real world bleak. That's not like pro wrestling bleak. That's not like something that's happening. Uh in the middle that's like of like Requiem for a Dream, bleak. right? Right, and I was like, "All right, well, now that feels like an Aronofsky movie." If we've we spent an hour in the in the world of pro wrestling just to get us ready to delve into this really fucked up relationship between this uh, conniving stripper and this loser wrestler that can't wrestle anymore, right? Mm-hmm. 
but then that doesn't happen. Like the, the way that the movie plays out later, it was, they, it's almost like Aronofsky almost went there and then he backtracks. And it's like, no, she actually is a decent person and she has feelings for him. And that's just trite. That, that's just generic. I don't really care for that. Uh, but for a moment, it looks like it's going the other way. For a moment, it actually looks like we might be into something. I mean, did you, did you read it a different way? Because she offers him a, a lap dance and he's like, I can't take it <laughs> right now. I just had surgery and and you're Marissa Tomei, so I can't have you rotating around my crotch. But she walks away and you're like, oh, she's bummed because she can. Because you, you, okay, so early in the movie when she gives him a, a a lap dance before he has a heart attack, she says it's sixty dollars, and she gives her money and he says keep the change. So I'm assuming he gave her a hundred, right? Mm-hmm. So he just tipped her forty dollars. That's Mister Big Spender there. I don't know how much you how much you tip when you go get lap dances, Alex, but. Uh, I would think forty dollars is that puts you above the the average customer at a strip club. So so she seems bummed when he later says, "No, no, I can't, I can't handle a lap dance from you." So then she attacks him from a different angle. She's like, "Okay, well, let's go shopping." <laughs> I'm just gonna wreck you from the inside personally now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if I can't get your money by dancing for you, I'm gonna get your money by uh, pretending to help you with your daughter's uh, problems. Yeah, they go out and she ends up helping uh, him buy like some clothing for her. Kind of get this funny scene where he's just completely tone deaf and wants to buy this very gaudy, garish green jacket for her. Uh, but she helps buy him like a pea coat to give to his daughter. He ends up asking her out for a beer. This is where she discloses, you know, I- I'm a mother. Um, I'm not all you think I am. I'm not just a stripper. And he just honestly wants to get to know her, uh, to get to know her a little bit better. So they go out for a beer and they dance to Round and Round. Is that Rat that sings that song? Mm-hmm. I mean, this movie is just loaded with 80s bangers. It's so weird yeah, because uh, it, it's just poorly timed dialogue because they're talking about the song and how awesome it is. And then uh, Mickey Rourke says, yeah, Guns N' Roses was great. And my first thought was like, that's not Guns N' Roses. <laughs> but then they keep talking about other bands. And I'm like, oh, okay. So it's just shitty dialogue. And then that Cobain pussy had to come and ruin it all. Yeah, it, it, like Marissa, Marissa Tomei, Tomei has like, the fucking nerve of saying, "Yeah, the '90s sucked." Well, and she also says, "Like, like there's something wrong with wanting to have a good time," referring to you know the music of the '80s. And then you're like, "You're a single mother who has to strip for money, and he's like this broken down <laughs> professional wrestler that can't give it up." I think you know the the '80s might have lied to you. <laughs> the good times had to come to an end at some point. The party has to end eventually, and, and here it is. They're drinking Rolling Rock in a bar at fucking noon on a Tuesday or whenever that they're there. And, uh, yeah, they end up sucking face in public. After uh, after Mickey Rourke attempts to give her a lap dance. Mickey Rourke dancing is just, it's on the level of Adam Scott singing. It's pretty bad and <laughs> doesn't need to happen ever again. There's an awesome outtake of, like, him dancing and there's no music playing, and, uh... He's like, fuck you, Darren. He's like mad at him for making him do it. He's like, <laughs> while he's still dancing, he's like, yeah, you come out here and try this shit. I don't know what the, the animosity in the air was, but uh, definitely humorous. So they kiss, and th- she immediately freaks out because of this, so she goes to take off. She fucking houses her beer before she does so. It's damaged their relationship, um, but I think that uh, she realizes it, and he doesn't. I think he leaves this with kind of like hope and thinking that this is going to lead to something. This is probably the most realistic moment in the movie, the whole this this little subplot because yeah, you're right. Next time they they 
they see each other. She's acting weird, and he's trying to hold her hand. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> that, that's just, I've seen those guys. I've seen those girls. I've been those guys. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I've misread signals before, too, so I can somewhat sympathize. So at this point, because of his relationship with Pam and also his daughter, I think he's opening up more to the idea of a life beyond wrestling. And because of that, he uh, is open to working the deli counter. He needs more hours, and he's fine working on weekends. Uh, But this is a customer-facing position that he takes on and... Julio, did you know the majority of this sequence here is improvised? Like there was a mix of extras, but actual customers at this supermarket flowing in and out. And like Mickey Rourke's interactions with them were largely improvised. They're like, they obviously they didn't include any of the beats where the customer would be like, are you the guy from Angel Heart? Barflies? Was that you? Man, what happened to your face? <laughs> By now, I think it's worth pointing out that it's been at least 30 minutes since we've seen any wrestling in a movie called The Wrestler. Um <laughs> The movie would have been more aptly titled uh, The Sad Sack. The Walking. <laughs> the, the, the Deli Counter. I don't know. It, it's just the heart attack, maybe. Once again, I, I felt cheated. And there's nothing here. Okay, that's cool that Mickey Rourke can kind of like think of his feet and just improvise all the stuff. He goes from being reluctant to work the deli counter to finding a way to have a good time while working it. And I was like, all right. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, if this sequence was in a movie that's not supposed to be about wrestling, if it was just a movie about an older guy trying to find his way in the world of retail, I probably would be a little more receptive to it. <laughs> but in the context of what I guess is trying to be a hard-hitting tale of the world of pro wrestling, it just it just felt like, can we move along? I don't need this. Once again, he ambushes his estranged daughter. doesn't really allow her any space to say, get away from me. It's just like, hey, I bought you something. And he gives her this coat and asks her to spend the day with him. And How insulting is uh, it that Marissa Tomei was right? That all he had to do for his daughter to, to forgive him was to buy her clothes. Selling out her own gender, man. <laughs> yeah. It's just such a simplistic uh, way of looking at uh, a strange father, uh, a strange daughter, you know, the relationship to her father and what what's needed to mend defenses there. Oh, just buy her a peacoat. That's it. Problem solved. And yeah, they go out and they have a very, very nice day together. And then we get the lauded Oscar scene that was used in all the advertising material and the trailer of um, I'm an old broken down piece of meat. And I'm alone, and I deserve to be alone. I just don't want you to hate me anymore. And then just perfect tear falls. Like, it's that one where he blinks, and then one tear rolls down each cheek. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's the type of thing you pray for. It's the, you know, the overlords that host the Oscar committees. This is the type of thing that they, like, spank off to in their free time. <laughs> and yet, this movie's so bad, he still couldn't get an Oscar, even after pulling this off. No, fucking Sean Penn just kind of showed up and, you know, woke up early a few days and they're like, well, we just got to give it to him. So they make a date. That was the the, the other thing that mm-hmm. I was just forget about knowing or not knowing about pro wrestling lore. If you're seeing a handful of movies, you know where this is headed. By now, Aronofsky is just so obvious in the way that he's constructed things. He, he had a strange daughter. He managed to get her to somehow forgive him give him a little bit of attention he sets up a date with her to have dinner what could go wrong (laughs) if you were mickey rourke in this instance wouldn't you go overboard in making sure that you make it to that dinner 
date. Yes. That would be like the sole focus of my life until it happened. I would just camp out outside the restaurant so I make sure that I'm not late come Saturday. Like the uh, old school days where you'd have to like camp outside of someplace to get tickets. <laughs> or those fuckers that like waited outside of a theater for a week to see um, the Clone Wars. Yep. It's just something you got to do, man. And in this case, it's his daughter on the line. So you think, yeah, it would matter to him a little bit more. And it's not like he has um, anything else going on. So really, he could have just done it. But of course, he goes to talk to Pam Cassidy about it, and you know, kind of all jubilant, and then kind of gives her the well. I thought well, you know something was happening here. We had something going on, and she's steadfast in that you're a customer. You're a customer. That's all you are. And of course, he takes this well. So he tries to like <laughs> buy a dance, and then just begins berating and demeaning her on the spot. Uh, it's a very tense and uncomfortable scene, but you can tell it's not one that uh, the um, Fine gentlemen that work the bouncing at Cheeks, they're definitely familiar with it. And they kind of take Randy's side on it, too. They're like, man, what you doing? Come on. <laughs> How old is this guy in, in in the movie? How old is he supposed to be? 50? He has to be in his 50s, yeah. Okay. I mean, even if he was in his 30s, this would be wrong. But, you know, the, the sight of a 50-year-old man throwing a tantrum because he misunderstood how close he was to a woman that he kissed once. It's just, it, it does nothing to endear me to the character. I know that this happens, these people exist, but especially at this crucial point in the movie where we're supposed to be on his side. Instead, it's like Aronofsky stacks the deck against him and just has him make bad decision after bad decision simply for the purpose of, well, we need to we need to arrive to a very specific end in the movie. There's no way that he basically kills himself at the end of the movie unless we make it, that he makes the worst decision possible. So when Marisa Tomei explains to him that she can't, they can't have a relationship, he acts like a child. And yeah. that basically sets off the rest of the movie. Uh, and it could have been so easily avoidable. You know, for I, I would buy it as a more uh, inevitable journey if we were talking about somebody in his early 20s, maybe. You know, mm-hmm. but a 50 year old man should be able to handle this better, especially somebody who has obviously the emotional maturity to handle the world of pro wrestling. They're like, if you can handle that, then you can handle rejection from Marissa Tomei, even from Marissa Tomei. You would think he has a hard time handling it. And honestly, when it gets down to these, when he starts actually feeling something, that's when he has to go back uh, and, you know, to his vice, which is pro wrestling. So he attends a Jersey all pro show. He doesn't do any wrestling. He just kind of goes there to see it and see everybody. Uh, we get a cameo from multiple time NWA world heavyweight champion and current WWE 24 seven champion, Ron, the truth killings. The joke about Ron killings is that he is immortal because uh, he just refuses to age. And he looks exactly the same in this movie as he does today on television. So God bless. He's got the good drugs. He goes to the after party with the boys, uh, runs into a female that provides him with some cocaine and is enamored with him and his being and, you know, the fact that he was a wrestler. So she asks if he wants to party. They do drugs. They have sex in the bathroom. And then he wakes up the next day, um, obviously not remembering anything the night before. He's wearing fucking fireman's boots and sneaks out. She's got like a, a pheasant or ferret cage and... He goes home and just passes out, sleeps off his hangover. This was more important than meeting up with his daughter. <laughs> How could you not, at some point, get clear-headed enough to at least set your alarm? It's not that he hooked up with this woman at his place. 
and then she left and he fell asleep. No, he had to go home. You know, on the way home, he would have, you know, just thought about it and be like, okay, what do I have in the agenda uh, for the weekend? Oh, that's right. I'm having dinner with my daughter. All right, well, better. What's coming up? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Before I just pass out in my filthy bed, what do I have coming up? So, yeah, again, it's just the movie forcing its protagonist to be extremely dumb so that bad things continue to happen. And bad things do happen. He goes and he. I don't even know if he tries to like tell her what happened, but he goes to see Stephanie and she just says, fuck you. I don't want anything to do with you. It's what does she say? There's no fixing this. It's broken. You're a fuck up. You know, I don't hate you. I just don't want anything to do with you anymore. This Evan Rachel Woods Oscar clip. Oh, easily. So she lives with somebody who might be her girlfriend. Mickey Rourke, the first time that he goes to visit her, I guess he instantly assumes that she is a lesbian because a woman opened the door. Right, and then yeah. he tells as much. He says that to uh, Marissa Tomei, and then when he walks in, now like he walks into the house, and I guess girlfriend, you know, she's they're talking like they're in a relationship. I thought they're really close friends, but it it seemed like it confirmed his impression, his first impression that this was his daughter's girlfriend, and uh, yeah, it just felt weird, like not knowing that this was inspired, I guess, by by somebody in real life to me it just felt like this really weird uh detail to throw in in the story without exploring it at all you know the fact that he has a a gay daughter never really makes a difference in how this part of the story plays out right like if you remove that element and evan rachel wood was straight or her sexuality just wasn't discussed at all in the movie uh, yeah it's still the same because her sexuality has no bearing on what happens. It's not that, oh, he was doing so well until he said something insensitive toward the gay community. Or yeah. or he was doing so well until he realized that he just didn't like the fact that she was gay. Or the other way around. Like he was doing really badly, but the way that he wins her heart is by being kind and open minded to to her girlfriend. I don't know. You know, it's like it's just so weird that you would bring up that angle and then not do anything with it. <laughs> Unless of course it's just to to make a cheap reference to a real life scenario, which I guess is what happens. Yeah. Basically, like I said, it's just uh, either an homage or a direct ripoff of beyond the mat, depending on, you know, your prerogative or where you stand on the matter. Frustrations are just overwhelming Randy at this point as it leads to, you know, we had the fun deli counter scene earlier and now we have the bad deli counter scene now where every customer is just being, you know, the absolute worst he can't take it anymore. And then the thing that sets him off and puts him over the edge is that someone recognizes him. You would think the type of thing he lives for without how uh, narcissistic and just egomaniacal he is. When someone finally recognizes him, it's just too much and it pushes him over the edge. Because I think this is where he realizes that he's a fucking failure and never really amounted to much. How do you rate, how do you compare the punch that he throws here to the uh, the meat slicer. How does it compare to uh, Adam Driver's punch in Marriage Story when he punches the wall? Randy commits to it here. <laughs> and Marriage Story, Charlie just kind of runs and throws this just shit like standing hammer fist. Uh, no one told him how to ever throw a punch. Randy here, you know, is clearly a guy. He's been in some scuffles in his day, both in and out of the ring. Uh, so for better, for worse, and in this case, definitely the worst, cause he puts his hand in a fucking deli slicer. Uh, he, he revved back and threw all he had into it. And then we get the 
like almost like Friday the Thirteenth esque blood splatter shot. Aronofsky, I guess, all he ever really wanted to do was make a horror movie because you see that bleed through in all of his other <laughs> projects. And here he's like, hell yeah, we get to do a splatter. It's a big sequence, which unfortunately diminishes the power of uh, when Marissa Tomei quits her job later on. It was like, you can't have one or the other. You can't have two people making a scene and quitting in the same movie. Jerry Maguire only yes. does it once. When he quits, he gets mad and he corrects like on the way out. He laughs to himself, Randy, because he called him Robin. And when she quits, she laughs to herself and says, Pam, because that's her <laughs> real name. They just... <laughs> It's the storytelling, you know, Aronofsky just writing the script with one hand on this pen and the other hand under the desk. He just was so full of what he was doing here. Want some fucking cheese, lady? But when no one else will have you in life, when you're at your absolute worst and you have nowhere else to turn, you always have professional wrestling. (laughs) They will take in and use anybody that they can. And that's what they do with Randy. It's time for the 20th year anniversary, the rematch between the Ayatollah and Randy the Ram Robinson. Is it believable uh, is he, that he'll be able to, because he canceled on them, and then suddenly last minute, he is like, oh, just kidding, I can do it. We're already running long on this, but I, I could go another two hours explaining all the times wrestlers pulled out, came back, and you know, it's <laughs> it's an industry where that is, especially from the generation that Randy would have came from, That that is definitely the norm. I think Hulk Hogan on more than one occasion said, well, I'm not going out there, dude. And then they would have to change something for him. And, okay. Well, I'll go out there. It's a head of the ring of honor show. Uh, did they say this was New York? It looks kind of like the Manhattan center, but I, I don't know where it was. Uh, if they announced where the actual venue was, you get a quick cameo from probably at that when the time the movie was made, him or Necro would have been the biggest names wrestling wise in the movie. And that's uh Nigel McGinnis, currently a WWE commentator, uh, who was, kind of on the downside of his career at that point, but uh, just an amazing, fantastic professional wrestler from the early to mid-2000s who is sadly a victim of the industry too, a a sad cautionary tale. Uh, Don't fall on your head a lot, and it's it's bad for you. He's still, you know, like I said, he has a job at the WWE, so it's good, but seeing him here when he was really big and filled out, it made me sad and had me waxing poetic for... The days of yore and from my one of my favorite time periods in wrestling. But he's just kind of there. And I think it was just, again, Aronofsky had these guys at his disposal. And with the exception of Necro, I think all of these he just wanted to sprinkle in his Easter eggs for people like me to talk about on a podcast uh, <laughs> fucking 13, 14 years later. But they have the match. Randy comes out to Sweet Child of Mine, which was donated to the movie for free from Axl Rose because they couldn't afford it with the budget that they had. So... There's one good thing that Axel's done in his life. At this point, the movie's fully endorsing suicide, right? There's no <laughs> way around it. It's built up a pretty airtight case against uh, Randy the Ram surviving another match. The doctors told him. Common sense has told him. And if that wasn't enough, Marissa Tomei fears for his life so much that she's traveled all the way to the match to tell him to not do it. And yet another moment of just pure fantasy. He chooses to sacrifice his life to wrestling instead of staying with Marissa Tomei, who's literally saying, I'm here. Let's do this. He was not the first and he will certainly not be the last. But he tells her, that's where I belong. And he goes out to the ring and gives his impassioned speech about how he's not well and how people said he shouldn't be there. But the only people who are going to tell me when I'm through doing my thing is you people here tonight. Um it's quite the buzzkill of a speech. 
I popped so hard for this the first time I saw it, and I do every time because it's such great pro wrestling. When he gives that speech, and then the Ayatollah hugs him, and then he gets the fucking Pearl Harbor cheap heat on him, <laughs> where like Randy turns his back and he runs up and blindsides him from behind. Uh, God, I lost it when I saw that. It's, it's such a great touch. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's really, if you've seen this or not, it's not going to really make much of a difference what we say here. It's a pretty by the books match, but halfway through it, Randy's body starts falling apart and. Uh, Pam can take no more. She leaves. She's like, uh, she watches all. She's she like can. Paul Reiser at the end of Whiplash. <laughs> Perfect, excellent. Except she's not waiting there with the arms wide open. She just bolts. She's just watching in horror, and then she's like, "I'm gonna leave before J.K. Simmons wins." Randy takes control and gets him to the point where he's on the top rope and he's gonna go for the Ram Jam, and we just see the final image is Randy the Ram, uh, you know, tearing up, slapping his forearms and elbows, and about to take off and we see him dive and go for it but uh then we fade to black and the dulcet tones of one bruce springsteen is only he can take us out but this is all bullshit i mean this would never happen right because one they would have run like a medical check on him before the fight just to make sure that he's fit and and, and ready to go <laughs> second the moment that he starts uh just having trouble they would have stopped the fight because Obviously, one of the fighters is, is having health issues. Ah, and third... Julio, the, so young, so naive to the industry. And third, the guy that's that's with him, even if nobody stops the fight, the guy that he's fighting, the Ayatollah, who's there up close and personal, can see that the, his opponent is having a heart attack. He, if nothing else, he would have just said, uh, nope, I'm out. Don't do it, Randy. I love when he's like, <laughs> he figures it out. He's like, all right, I'll take it from here. And then Randy just won't stop working. <laughs> Tale as old as time in that industry. Bruce Springsteen asks us, have we ever seen a one-trick pony in a field so happy and free? And I'm sitting there to wonder, how many more lives is this industry going to claim? The crowd pleaser from Darren Aronofsky, the wrestler, for your consideration. I think that's what happened. Yeah, just people thought it was. there's no way that is based in any semblance of reality. He's like, wow, he told this crazy off-the-wall story about professional wrestling that most certainly can't be in any way true. Brilliant! He smeared... The world of pro wrestling with these lies. It's a hatchet job. It's an assassination right. piece on the world of wrestling. An attempt to turn wrestling fans away from the sport they love. And that much like Randy and his inability to move on, the fans will never be able to either. It's uh, the <laughs> business is a fucking disease. And the this movie <laughs> highlights that brilliantly. <laughs> and I think that's as good a note as any to move along to uh, real talk. A very somber note. <laughs> 46. What would you like? Can I have a half a pound of pesto pasta salad? Okay, come on. Half a pound of pesto pasta on the button. Can I get you anything else? No, that's it. You have a lovely day, darling. Thanks. 47. Let me get an eight piece uh, chicken. What kind of chicken you want? I want eight pieces, two breasts. You need two big breasts. Two big breasts coming up. That's what I want, two big breasts. <laughs> big breasts and a, something with a brain. And two wings? Yeah. yeah stay away from them thighs. A lot of chicken flying out the door. There you go, honey. Have a good Thank day. You. Have a good day. <laughs> Who's next? Me. What you having? Good looking. Uh, half a pound of egg salad. Half a pound of egg salad coming up. Here we go. Fresh? Fresh? Yeah. Fresh as monkey's breath, brother. Oh, yeah. This is the good stuff. Coming up. 
Down and out. Come on. It's the fourth quarter. Come on, come on, come on. There's 12 seconds left. Go. Down and out. Here. Both hands. Hey! Touchdown! God damn! How about them Cowboys? What you having, Spring Chicken? Hi. All right. I am recording for Real Talk, but before we go into Real Talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we tell our listeners, if they're not patrons, we tell them about the cool things going on our patron. If they're patrons, we let you patrons know what to expect on our patron. Win-win for everybody involved. We have two new patrons, Brad from The Cinema Guys and Josh Ragland, which I know is a fellow listener of other podcasts. So welcome, guys. Hope you enjoyed the extra content. Alex, what are we going to be talking about on Contrarians After Hours, our very special exclusive segment for patrons. I watched a couple of horror movies this week that I'm going to be discussing, one called Antrim and one called Be My Cat, a film for Anne. Both fascinating movies for different reasons. <laughs> Antrim is going to be kind of hard to discuss because it's a movie that you definitely need to go into Baccarat blind, as we now say. Uh, <laughs> keeping up pretty well of getting a movie in each day. Uh, so those are two from this week that stuck out. So we will be discussing those on my end. How about yourself? Uh, well, this time around, I'm going to be talking about The Vast of Night, which is a sci-fi movie on Amazon Prime, uh, which I finally got around to watching it. I, it. It had some buzz from 2020, and I'm still trying to get through big 2020 releases. And then, like I told you, uh, I think last week when I watched it, You Cannot Kill David Arquette is streaming for free on Hulu. And nice. don't worry, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but I want to kind of just talk about it a little bit and prep you for it because I'm assuming you're going to watch it and then we'll discuss it at length. But I, I kind of want to talk about it a little bit anyway. Uh, so so that will be on Contrarians After Hours. Additionally, of course, if you're a patron, you'll get access to all the stuff that we cut out from the main episode. Uh, usually when we run long, like we're running long on this wrestler episode, uh, a lot of cool stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. And that cutting room floor then gets transferred to our patron channel. And then later this month, we'll also have our exclusive uh, bonus patron episode, uh, courtesy of patron Jamie Russell, who demanded we do The King of Comedy. A blind spot for Alex. And a rewatch for me, I haven't seen The King of Comedy in at least two decades, probably longer. So uh, really looking forward to that. Check out patreon.com slash Prime. That's where you can take a look at our tiers, see how much you would like to contribute to the to the Contrarian's dream and see which benefits uh, work for you best. Yes, our four tiers, $1, $3, $5, and $10 for the price of... I paid like fucking $3 for a large Dr. Pepper today. So for that amount, you can just get... <laughs> unforetold riches on the contrarians patron you love what we do we love that you love what we do let's continue to do it together be sure to head over and join our patrons finally before we go into real talk here once again is the promo for the live stream for the cure 2021 edition it will take place from wednesday may 19th to sunday may 23rd and once again the contrarians will be part of it Hell yeah. uh, let's listen to the promo and then we can tell you about it my name is nicholas haskins and i'd like a moment of your time to tell you about the fifth annual live stream for the cure to do that i brought along two people whom i couldn't do this event without gerald morris and dan brennick over the past four years, the live stream for The Cure has raised over $30,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. 
That contribution is helping to fund research into cancer immunotherapy, training the body's immune system to fight all forms of cancer. This year, we're aiming for our biggest goal yet as we try to raise $15,000 in 50 hours on the air. Tune in May 19th through the 23rd as we're joined live by podcasters and content creators from around the world. With your help, we can continue the fight for a future immune to cancer. Together, we can make a difference. All right, so the live stream for The Cure, our segment, Alex, will be May 22nd at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, a movie to be decided. Now, by now, the poll that we set up to guide us in the right direction to picking the movie should be completed, but of course, we're recording this ahead of time, so we have no idea what won. (laughs) (laughs) Once... Real time catches up with us. We'll be able to talk more about it. But regardless, it will be a lot of fun, just like it was a lot of fun the last couple of years. And now we can go to Real Talk. Mickey Rourke's one and only Oscar nomination at hand here. And I don't remember if I corrected myself in the first portion, but yes, Marissa Tomei was nominated for uh, actress in a supporting role. Sadly, Mickey Rourke, of course, lost to Sean Penn, as we had mentioned. He was also against Richard Jenkins, uh, Franklin Langella. And Brad Pitt, whilst... Who are those guys? <laughs> While Miss Tomei was up against uh, Taraja P. Henson, Viola Davis, Amy Adams, and the winner, Penelope Cruz. Elsewhere, uh, I believe Mickey won the Golden Globe for this. He did. And uh, the Golden Globe for Best Original Song went to Bruce why it wasn't nominated for the best original song at the Academy Awards, I do not know, but that ended up going to Randy Newman. <laughs> no, it went to Jai Ho from Slumdog Millionaire. <laughs> Come on. Two songs from Slumdog Millionaire were nominated for best original song, and then Down to Earth from Wally by Peter Gabriel and Thomas Newman. That's egregious. Uh, Bruce uh, was friends, or I assume they still are. He had had a good relationship with Mickey Rourke. And Mickey asked if he would write a song for it. And he sent him a copy of the script and kind of just his thoughts on the movie. I think the story goes that Aronofsky and Mickey Rourke went to a Springsteen concert a few months after that. And then they went backstage and he had had the song written and he played it for him right there. Mickey Rourke dropped the the single tear and that's the take they used in the movie. Why not? Because Springsteen's (laughs) awesome. Right away, you're already... You're trending well when you've got a Springsteen song that's attached to your movie, an original song at that. The Basics, as we covered in the first portion, released Prime Award season, released December 17, 2008. Extremely modest budget. Varying numbers have been released on what Mickey Rourke was paid. $100,000 seems to be about what uh, is agreed upon. Box office return of $45 million, but I'm sure that this movie, through rentals and purchases since then, is garnered even more so aronofsky always wanted mickey rourke to play the part of randy uh, between him and his co- collaboration with robert siegel uh, that who wrote this movie um, the idea was always randy the ram being mickey rourke however the studio behind it i mean mickey rourke does kind of have an auspicious reputation and it's they kind of had to jump through some hoops for that, and so much so that at one point, who was the studio on this? Uh, Fox Searchlight. They wanted Nicolas Cage in the lead. Have you ever heard this, Julio? Uh, no, but I can totally see Cage playing Randy the Ram. So much so. It's a completely different movie. 
So much so that Nicolas Cage actually did a little bit of training and he attended a couple of Ring of Honor shows uh, to kind of start getting a feel for it. Hilariously, there's a picture of Nicolas Cage and uh, now Michi Marafuji. Again, these words mean nothing to you, but it is something that I remember when it hit the forums back in the day. It's just this picture of Nicolas Cage and Marafuji together that uh, they both look like, they, you know, who's this person I'm standing with? It's very, very funny. Two legends so in their own. I'm right. guessing at some point, uh, at some point, Cage decided that the world of pro wrestling was too crazy even for him, <laughs> and he backed out of the project. He said he didn't have enough time to prepare, and then Aronofsky's like, "I like him, but I always wanted Mickey Rourke in this role." So Mickey Rourke actually went through training for this. Uh, the majority of what you see in the ring is indeed Mickey Rourke. He did have a stunt double who did some of the more crazy shit. Kid USA, I think was his name from the sound of it was kind of a Northeastern indie wrestler from the nineties. I, I was, you know, shockingly not too familiar with him, but like I just said, Mickey actually went through proper training for this. He was trained by Afa Anawahi, who is a member of the very famous uh, and legendary Samoan family. As far as professional wrestling goes, pretty much all Samoan wrestlers, with the exception of Samoa Joe, come from the same family tree. And uh, Anawahi here, he's related to The Rock. Uh, he's The Rock's uncle, I believe. Uh, and most uh, modern, he is the uncle of the current WWE champion, Roman Reigns. So he also is famous. He trained B Dave Batista, who there's kind of a crossover for you in the movie realm. And uh, Mickey actually went through training with him in this. And Afa helped lay out what the matches would look like. That would be translated to screen. Falsely, Hulk Hogan claimed that he was offered the leading role in this movie. And <laughs> it has oh, been. God, I would uh, love to see that movie. Oh, fuck off. It's been publicly shot down by Darren Aronofsky. Hulk just can never stay away for too long. He can't have a pie that his finger's not in. That's just how Terry operates. Are you telling me if they announced a remake of The Wrestler starring. Hulk Hogan, you wouldn't watch it? Uh, I think Hulk has bigger things to worry about, like rehabbing <laughs> his image in general. Hulk Hogan's Hulk Hogan, and he'll always be that. You know, He'll always be that person from my childhood, but as, as I stand here today, I have very little interest in anything to do with that man anymore. He seems to be a real piece of shit, and being an adult now, I can't just look past that. Most wrestlers liked this movie. Uh, Roddy Piper was said to be moved to tears from it. Bret Hart uh, said it was a great movie and a great performance, but he took umbrage with some of the the presentation in it or the way wrestlers were portrayed. And it was Brett being Brett. Uh, as I mentioned, Vince McMahon did not care for it until he saw there was potential money to be made from it. Uh, <laughs> this came out shortly before WrestleMania 25, and there was an angle that was starting between a wrestler by the name of Chris Jericho and Mickey Rourke, they were on Larry King and had like this confrontation, obviously fictionalized. The idea seemed to be that they were going to do a Mickey Rourke versus Chris Jericho match at WrestleMania 25. Rourke even said on a red carpet somewhere, and hey, I'm going to kick Jericho's ass because Jericho then to kind of net, uh, thread the needle was doing things on TV where he was like shaming the legends of the past and, you know, saying they're washed up and have no place in it. So it definitely looked like that's where we were heading uh, until Mickey Rourke's spokespeople basically got wind of it and said, no, <laughs> he's a distinguished actor now. 
Well, yeah, I think the idea again. This is all, I guess, it's conjecture, really. But these, this story is what I have pieced together with the information I've been given over the past decade. It came to a point where basically, you do this, it's going to kill any chances you have of winning anything, and it's going to really just kind of cast a, a pall over this movie. And so he opted out of wrestling there, but he still. Do you want to be in Iron Man two or not? <laughs> well, we'll get to that. That's what he cashed in all the chips on was Whiplash. He still appeared at WrestleMania. I was at this WrestleMania in Houston. Uh, and the he still had this payoff angle with Jericho where he got in the ring and he like punched him. He sat front row, but it by that point had all spiraled so out of control with confusion about if they were working or shooting that Mickey Rourke showed up with uh, Frank Shamrock in tow and then someone else, I can't remember who the third guy was, but basically Frank Shamrock, for those who don't know, is one of the most legendary MMA fighters of all time. And as history has gone on, it's come to light that Mickey went there not knowing if these guys were like if Chris Jericho was actually going to try to fight him. And so he brought, you know, a couple, uh, a hooker and a ringer along with him in case anything went wrong. He had backup there. Fortunately, all parties worked together and Mickey threw this really shitty phantom punch and, you know, walked out happy. <laughs> I, the crowd liked it. I remember it was it was fun. It was what it was. Did you like it? Yeah, I I, I kind of didn't like that he was there to begin with. I would have hated if he had the match with them because it would have just been so silly. It would have made the movie seem for naught. Mm-hmm. That said, I mean hindsight, it would have been cool to see him come out in the Ram Jam trunks, and, you know, <laughs> come out to Sweet Child of Mine or something. <laughs> I mean, it's it's anything. It's WrestleMania. They'll always have celebrities there, and then. It was a movie about wrestling, so they and it started gaining notoriety. Uh, it was huge at that moment, so of course they were going to find a way to be involved in it. It's it would be silly for me not to expect that to happen. Ring of Honor, the company highlighted at the end of the movie, they kind of lucked into a situation where the aforementioned Nigel McGuinness was their champion at the time, and Nigel needed some time off. By the time he had his last match, he was wrestling. It was either two torn biceps or tor- two torn rotator cuffs that he had, and he was still working. And a wrestler by the name of Jerry Lynn, who was a very established veteran at that point in time, and just coincidentally happened to look a lot like Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler, they were able to kind of play off this and him have his one last career run where he came back and beat Nigel for the belt. So everyone in wrestling kind of benefited from this moment uh, of temporary time in the sun, uh, despite the fact that no one really took the right things away from this movie uh, about just... (laughs) how crushing and um, accurately depicting it is the life of a wrestler. All that lead into it. Uh, Julio, obviously my attachment to this movie goes many, many levels deep to it. I don't think all that knowledge that I had and just regurgitated here is necessary to enjoy this. I think, you know, as we've joked about your wrestling knowledge is basically what I've imparted upon you. But even before you met me, you saw this movie and I'm sure you were able to see it for what it is. And that's a great movie. Uh, yes. <laughs> In a word, yes. In a word, yes. And and uh, I think I told you right before we started recording, uh, even more so on rewatch years and years later. Let me read you a few of the quotes that I have here. Mm-hmm. There's a funny thing about the Rotten Tomatoes quotes. The, the most interesting negative quotes I found were from fresh reviews. Interesting. <laughs> Yeah, backhanded compliments. Written by uh, uh, Vince M. and V. McMahon. <laughs> yes. 
Bruce Bennett from Spectrum, St. George, Utah, who says, Rourke's performance is gritty and real for sure, and the tender moments ring true. But let's not go overboard. It's practically a reality show. I mean, I see his point, especially after everything you've said. But I, I think that that doesn't give Aronofsky enough credit. That's what we had mentioned a little bit earlier. A lot of people viewed this movie as like, a live action allegory of Mickey Rourke. Like we were watching his redemption in front of us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that's what a lot of people took away from it. For example, Maitland McDonough from Miss Flickchick says, Mickey Rourke's mesmerizing road wreck performance as a washed up wrestler is the only reason to sit through the wrestler's cliches. Because I guess there is one of the narratives, one of the arguments is that this is just your standard sports movie, only elevated by Mickey Rourke's performance, which I don't agree with that. But yeah, then me again, I, I mean, I wouldn't call myself an expert in the sports movie genre, but I feel like this transcends what they would call cliches of, of that genre. James Christopher from Times UK says, The weakness of Aronofsky's film is that these various sentimental crises are framed with as much subtlety as Randy's widely overdue heart attack. The film lurches into a predictable panic about dying alone. I mean, you said it in Contrarian's Corner. <laughs> Nobody's going to say Aronofsky's subtle. Yeah. You're going to watch an Aronofsky movie, then it's going to be pretty heightened as far as the, the way that it conveys things. Mm -hmm. And then finally, this one is actually rotten. Kenneth Turan from Los Angeles Times says, While the director was essential in collaborating with Rourke to create that memorable performance, it remains real work in an essentially fake film, and there is nothing anyone can do about that. Real work in a fake film doesn't I mean, wrestling's seem fake. fair. Right, but that doesn't make it a fake film. I don't I know. I think it's actually a real film about fake fights. <laughs> Once you cross over into the realm of pro wrestling, you have no idea what's fake and what's not anymore. <laughs> Aronofsky just worked uh, us all. There's so many entry points into this movie, right? And we we kind of joked about them in Contrarian's Corner, but you go into it as a wrestling fan, you go into it as a Mickey Rourke fan, you go into it as an Aronofsky fan. And I think that that definitely affects how you experience the movie. I, I can't fathom, I can't put myself in the shoes right now of somebody who was a massive Mickey Rourke fan and then saw his career derail and then suddenly watched him come back with this movie and that performance. Mm -hmm. Like I know I experienced it from the outside, right? I experienced the buzz uh, built around the movie uh, by the time it was released, the buzz about his performance and, you know, this is his comeback and all that. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a parallel, you know, and, and I can't think of one right now that would apply to me. But that has to have been a pretty thrilling experience to suddenly see this actor you admire come back so strongly. And, and and yeah, of course, in a movie that parallels somewhat his own journey. But that was not you, right? Or were you a Mickey Rourke fan that also had that extra layer of uh, meaning when you were watching The Wrestler? Uh, I mean, I, I knew of Mickey Rourke and I knew his famous entries in his filmography yeah, I didn't go there being like, yeah, this is his comeback, but that was part of the narrative. That was part of the story of seeing... To me, the movie was just a, like a perfect storm. All right, it's about wrestling. It's getting a lot of buzz. This actor has like apparently this like career performance in it where it's a comeback for him. I mean, I went to the movie with my buddies who I watched wrestling with, so that was obviously the original sell, but all those other things were kind of intertwined in it that 
made the first viewing of it so enjoyable. But then as an Aronofsky movie, it's also so unlike his previous work, I would think, right? Because this is what, his fourth after The Fountain, right? This Pi, Rooking for a Dream, The Fountain, and then The Wrestler? Pi, Requiem, The Fountain, and The Wrestler, yeah. So this was his fourth movie. Right. So to me, this feels like when Tarantino did Jackie Brown after having done Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Mm. Fiction. Don't you think? Like, where it really, it switches gears. It it almost, in Tarantino's own words, like, he, he was out to prove to critics that he could do the work of a mature director if he wanted to. I mean, that's not exactly what he said verbatim, but that was the idea. And he's like, you know, this is a movie that I, I could make 20 years from now, but I decided to make it now. It, it kind of feels like that, like Aronofsky making a more subdued movie. I mean, that, that quote that I read earlier, praise him for that. That's crazy. I mean, it's a good movie. It's very different from what he had done before. So I wonder, as an Aronofsky fan, I guess I was when I watched it. It it certainly felt less crazy than what I expected, uh, but that was not a bad thing. And then, of course, you know the other angle. As a wrestling fan, I had absolutely no no connection to the material in that sense. Uh, but I was able to to still enjoy it, and I think I took the movie at face value. What it was telling me, I don't think I, I didn't have anybody to you know turn to at the time and ask like, "Hey, is this really how it goes?" Uh, but I assumed that it was. I didn't think that the movie was making things up. I was like, okay, I guess that's how it is, at least in some corners of the world when it comes to pro wrestling. So there's that side of it where to somebody like me, there's that novelty of just learning about this new world, yeah, uh, seeing the behind the scenes of it, which, yeah, I made fun of it in Contrarian's Corner, but no, it doesn't demystify anything for me, or at least not in a bad way. To me, it was just fascinating to see that, holy shit. It can be fake and it can be real at the same time. <laughs> that was that to me was was pretty exciting. But then, I mean, ultimately, it's it's Mickey Rourke's movie. I mean, I think that that's at least for me, that's why it works. Again, that is uh, divorced from his real life story because I had no attachment to that going mm-hmm. in. To me, it's just the performance. He just sells it. I think that now, of course, on my third watch, I am more aware of it. So. Yeah, definitely. When he gets to the the big speech, his Oscar speech with the with the tear and everything, I couldn't help it. I mean, I now I was on this third watch, I was really putting it all together, right? It wasn't just the character, it was Mickey Rourke talking and uh, I could definitely see it this time around. I could feel the regret, I guess, from his previous choices in life, like the actor's choices in life informing his performance here and that certainly made it extra special. But even without that, even without that context, I think it's just it's so good. It, he's so good in the role. It's not just that it's naturalistic, but it's just that it it just feels so honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, there's no no ego, at least not that I, on, on screen. You know, I mean, yeah, there's the performance that shows you that he has pride when he goes on stage. But as far as like the performance itself, like the actor, I just felt like it was. It just felt like he was just really going all in on the role and didn't care how unflattering it could be. Yeah, it, it's so good, man. It, I I was really taken by it, uh, even more so this time around. Uh, and I told you, I started watching it like at 2 in the morning. Uh, I planned my day really, really poorly. <laughs> and at the time, I thought, all right, well, I'll watch an hour, and then I'll finish it in the morning or, or before recording. But I was enthralled from the very beginning. Whatever weariness, sleepiness I had before I pressed play, 
it just went away within like five minutes of the movie starting and it didn't come back until the movie was over it's it's really good i, I electrified i and this again this is coming from somebody who has very little connection to wrestling so how does it play for you alex <laughs> I mean, all the things you said are right, and it's like Mickey Rourke was—he wasn't a guy that like was a wrestling fan and grew up a wrestling fan. So I think he just threw himself into this role, and that's like one of the things I like about it most. And obviously, Marissa Tomei is fantastic, and just the way the story's made and the story's told, and you know, Aronofsky with his clear vision for shit is fantastic. I know we wouldn't have the same nice things to say about some of his more recent entries in his filmography. Uh, but man, the wrestler and black Swan back to back, that's, that's a hell of a combo right there. Uh, a combo that got like the absolute most from its players involved. So obviously dude has the touch when he wants to, um, to your question about how it plays for me, it's, I don't know if it's like almost like to the point of, comedy how on the nail it is with it and especially about how like aronofsky never really worked in the wrestling industry and so mm-hmm. it's pretty impressive that he's able to tell the story as well as he has here like i said the source material exists like beyond the mat and books and there's all types of stuff out there but um i i like resent some of the criticisms of it like uh jim Cornette is someone who is was in the wrestling industry in the time period that like the Ram would have been a big star and held up in it. And Jim Cornette was extremely critical of this movie and said like it was very damning of the wrestling industry and just painted like a horrible picture of it. Whereas like Jim Cornette was he's smart with his money and has like a big home now that he lives in and he can pop into these conventions every once in a while, make a few quick bucks. But he basically saved his money from wrestling and was smart with it and wasn't a guy that ever really had any true vices or anything like that. And so can live comfortably now. So for him to say that it's kind of like, okay, but, and on top of that, the number of people like that from that era that are living comfortably now, it's uh, the, the ratio is a bit unbalanced. So I think my first thoughts were, I don't know if I was trying to be defensive of wrestling. Like when people would ask me about this movie or talk to me about it, it's so hard for me not to just default to like joking about it because that's like my defense mechanism. Because for better Mm -hmm. or worse, like wrestling is like a life's passion of mine. Um, I meant what I said. It's a disease. And I think this movie accurately portrays that. Um, Even as a fan, I'm not a wrestler. Even as a fan, I can tell you wrestling is a disease. It picks you. Uh, the professional wrestling industry picks you, and it's usually because there's like something missing. And once it gets your hooks in you, it's kind of hard to let it go. Uh, around this point in time, maybe a couple years after this, a wrestler by the name of Larry Sweeney uh, killed himself, and his like suicide note was very similar to that. Is it said like wrestling once it's in you you're not getting rid of it. And as a fan, like for example, me, I know the feelings that wrestling gave me as a child and as a teen. And even as an adult, I'm not saying like, they're not on par with like big family events, love, but from like a superficial standpoint, the feelings that wrestling has been able to give me are like a drug, like, uh, on our fucking, Endgame episode, WrestleMania 30 with Daniel Bryan. When him winning the title at WrestleMania 30 was like legitimately one of the happiest moments 
of my life. And that was seven years ago that I have been chasing that since. Like that was the most recent thing I have put up with how bad wrestling has been since then because I'm like, it's going to get back to that point. There's going to be mm-hmm. something that equivalates that. And because of that, you just put up with shit. And that is like a fan. You put up with just bullshit and the embarrassment that comes along with being a wrestling fan constantly because it can provide that fix for you one time for like a 10-year span and it's like you feel like it's justified. And that's just being a fan. Being a wrestler, you know, typically these guys are even more broken. And especially, like I said, I keep saying from the era that the Ram came from, because that era was completely different. It was just people that had no real prospects or anything. Now it's like fucking gymnasts and people that have, you know, potential coding experience and can make video games. Wrestlers mm-hmm. today are not what they used to be. And that's, for better or worse, is an argument for a different time. I've met, I've had conversations with, I've known people like Randy the Ram that all their life, like they were looking for something that was given to them in that moment in the spotlight. And horrifyingly, Scott Hall once said, and Scott Hall's famous wrestler from the 90s had a very, very famous battle with drug and alcohol addiction. He said in this documentary one time, he just doesn't know what to do when they stop cheering. That's what that mindset was. And sadly, so many of those guys lived through that. And the problem with that is the professional wrestling industry does not give a shit about these people at all. And they prey on people like Randy the Ram. Just like the end of this movie, dude's dying. Yeah, we'll have you. Gonna be on our show. (laughs) And that's the problem. The fault with that industry. It uses these people up and there's nothing to go to at the end. And if you want to stick around, you got to figure out how to keep yourself... You know, in the game, in this case, it's fucking Mickey Rourke doing a death match here with the Necro Butcher. There was a wrestler uh, over the past few years who had like a career resurgence at 50, PCO. He was doing shit that someone who's 25 should not be doing. But it's the only way he feel he could fit in is doing these crazy things. And this dude, like, if he dies, he dies, to quote Ivan Drago. Uh, <laughs> so I feel this movie so perfectly encapsulates the idea that wrestling is this addiction, uh, but also displaying that it's relentless and vicious. And it's a industry that will chew you up, spit you out an industry that you have almost no friends in, but dozens, if not hundreds of acquaintances and an industry that you are embarrassed to be in, but it's the only thing that'll have you. And it's something that you can't really explain to anyone that doesn't understand it. That whole thing at the end with Marissa Tomei, this is where I belong and can't really make sense of it. It's, um, it's something, I don't know if he's in the movie. It would have been around the same point in time. Wrestler by the name of Danny Havoc once said, I wish I could just tell someone that's outside of the wrestling circle, what I do for a living and they have respect for me. I think that is a notion that's really heavily, prevalent in this movie a theme through it so to answer your question there's a whole variety a whole gamut of emotions that i have every time i watch this movie i think this time around watching it it was more just from the perspective of the movie the the film itself the way it was made the acting 
because there are so many fucking great scenes in this. You know, we harped on in the first portion, like the heart wrenching shit, because there's plenty of it. But like the scene where they're at the bar together singing round and round, that's so fucking cool. That might be my favorite scene in the movie because, yes, Marissa Tomei is great. (laughs) (laughs) And they well, you know, it's it's also I, I think that you see anything like that in the movie. That's the one moment that is almost absolutely lighthearted mm-hmm. and you are maybe tricked into believing that there's hope that he might be able to escape because you know it's going well they actually seem to have some sort of chemistry beyond stripper and customer right and i think that one reason she's so great and i don't think that i really picked up on it until this time uh it's just how she she walks that line like aronofsky and her performance, like you're never sure in most of her scenes if she is just being really good at her job as a stripper, yeah, or if she really cares for him, yeah. And I really appreciated that ambiguity. Like I think it's right corner. By the end of the movie, I think that it's clear that she maybe she doesn't care for him as much as he would like to, but she definitely cares. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. There is up until that moment when he kisses her and she kisses him back. I think that you're still kind of wondering what's going to happen. But the fact that they're having a good time, they seem to be having a good time, is it's pretty awesome. It comes at the right time in the movie, too. You know, the way that they're laughing and and then the way that she exits the scene <laughs> with her whole... It's just so low-key badass that she just chugs the beer and walks off. <laughs> It's just so great. I, I I love that. I wonder before I forget though, it occurs to me that once again we've accidentally walked into a pretty good pairing of movies doing this so soon after having done the Showgirls episode. <laughs> because dude, as I was hearing you describe the industry and the way it treats the people in the industry and the way that just all of everything you said is what I feel Showgirls was trying to say and what people that hail showgirls as a as a great movie as a movie that has you know resonance what they claim it's saying except that in my opinion and yours showgirls doesn't pull it off and this one nails it Mm -hmm. Um, obviously two different tones going for it right this one slightly this is (laughs) this is not satire it's not even trying to be satire we don't know what showgirls was going for but this is very clearly a a drama pretty bleak one at that so it was i don't know i i, I think it's it's funny because yeah in the end it's just it's still the entertainment industry <laughs> it's yeah. a different area of it but it's still that and it's crazy because yeah I, I i think that definitely before this movie i never would have given much thought to what it's like to be a pro wrestler that is not at the top right that the, the idea that not that i knew much about pro wrestling to begin with but mm-hmm. i imagine most people just if you experience pro wrestling in the periphery as something that's just around, you're like, oh, well, they're the guys that are on TV. It's like assuming that every actor or that the only actors and actresses around are the ones that you see in mm-hmm. movies, exactly. in movie theaters. But there's really this whole underbelly of struggling <laughs> artists trying to break through, and most of them are not going to through their entire lives, and they're going to just either live barely make a living or live with like you know having a second job or give up on their dreams and just settle doing something else outside of of that industry so uh, some so many of them yeah it, like they just that's why especially back in the time that this movie was plotted the late 2000s 
There was just so if you went to a show, there'd just be so many like older guys that looked like the Ram there. Um, obviously, the Ram was a high level performer at one point, but you know these guys just hang on. All you got to do is you know the next gig. You never know who's going to be in the audience. Uh, Lou and Davis type shit. I've often said yep. like Lou and Davis. Um, I've told people that were like training in wrestling or you know guys in wrestling like you really should watch that movie and you know try to understand what it's saying. I've always thought the parallels between that and like the wrestler to a certain extent and just the overall idea of like the the independent wrestler trying to make it um Lewin Davis tells that story beautifully. I say it picks you uh there are plenty of fans that get into wrestling and it's casual and then they fall out of it. When I say it picks you, I mean, there's people that really just get sucked into it. The fucking psychos like me that travel across the country, uh, countries to see it. And (laughs) you know, there's cases of wrestlers that got in and had a decent go of it and got out and then went on to do something else with their life. Uh, be it stunt work actors, you know, it's just, there are so many more Randy, the Rams than there are Steve Austin's, the Rocks and John Cena's, even Hogan, Ric Flair, people regard as two as best ever. They have to come back every once in a while because they need fucking money. Old, broken down pieces of meat that aren't good for anything else. And like I said, there seemed to be this real effort after this came out for wrestling to like clean itself up or give the impression that it is. And that's the thing that like today, wrestling they try to act like it's different and it's better. And the WWE has done things in the way of they will like sponsor uh, wrestlers like the Ram, for example, if someone in that stage that didn't work for them any longer, but at some point worked for them needed to go to rehab. They'll help out with that. It's still the same fucking industry though. The fact that they do stuff like that for a PR front is, I mean, it's business for the rest of my life. It's going to be what this movie painted it to be. Uh, It's a machine and they can take the cogs out when they need to and move them along and, they can say thank you if they want to, but it's unlikely that they will. And when you get too old, it's time to shift you to the back and, you know, move on to the next one. And uh, those guys don't know how to accept that. I think there are smarter wrestlers now in the sense of people planning exit strategies. You can't bank on being the rock, but there are wrestlers <laughs> like uh, Xavier Woods is a good example of someone who's like building this kind of um i don't want to say fallback but he he has a internet show that's really famous about video gaming and it's already lent him to getting like spots on g4 like hosting gigs and shit like that i think people have learned from situations like randy the ram uh, maybe from the movie directly itself that you got to have an exit strategy because these guys that have dedicated their whole lives to it it typically doesn't end up too well like i said fucking the look that the ram was based off of with lex luger dude's like paralyzed in a wheelchair now and who knows what kind of compensation he's receiving for that even if he has health insurance i i would like to see a movie a follow-up not a sequel but you know something in this vein that would explore how the rise of social media has changed it though if it has at all i mean i i I don't know i mean you would know but I, i i can't imagine that there is not an effect now that you know you have i i know like a lot of these guys obviously they're they're like the ram here and they're like stuck in the nintendo era <laughs> but yeah. still there there's also i mean you're talking about you know some wrestlers like smarting up and trying to find like alternatives 
to just the standard industry and all that stuff. But, you know, in this era of, of YouTube and TikTok and Twitter and whatever, it was like, can social media make a difference in the way that somebody that's not a superstar still manages to somehow take control of their of their wrestling career in a way that you basically don't see it happening for the Ram? There's something, I, I don't know if that was your experience with watching the movie, I never got the feeling that it was ever going to happen for him in wrestling. I, I thought that maybe there was a chance that he could manage to have a successful life mm-hmm. outside wrestling. But to me, it seemed like it was pretty clear that that window had closed. And yeah. now it was just it, for his benefit. He had to like get out of there. Yeah. Uh, but that is, that is a world that's not quite the world that we're in right now. So I wonder if there was something, if you were to tell that story in the year 2021, if the coming of social media would actually change the way that you tell that story, even if it's just something as silly as uh, Randy Ram having a YouTube channel where he just does shit, you know, and that and tries to monetize it that way. I don't know something that doesn't that makes it slightly less hopeless, or mm. maybe it would be just as hopeless, even worse, maybe because it would be it would just look ridiculous. Is that even a thing? In the year 2021, do you have such a thing as wrestlers that are not big stars, but they have like a presence online trying to like hustling that way? I mean, yeah, whether it works or not is debatable. That That's an interesting point. But yeah, it's not it's just so different than every other like medium of entertainment. Mm-hmm. And that sadly doesn't really work that way. We're getting to a point where guys are being smarter. Guys aren't, you know, partying like they used to and doing as many drugs and going fucking nuts with steroids and shit like they used to, which obviously will help. Uh, but from a perspective of, like, the industry looking out for people, uh, that's just not going to happen. I mean, they can make it happen on a business front if they all unionize, but you're never going to get fucking every pro wrestler to agree on something because the second they all do, one of them will go, well, wait. If I don't, that means I can be the champion because they're all fucking egomaniacs and <laughs> we'll all stab each other in the back when when the time comes. And I think this movie is, at this point, a cautionary tale. Uh, sadly, there's still plenty of Rams out there that can't give it up. And I appreciate that this movie told that story. Uh, I feel like when this came out, people thought they could do something to make a difference. And it's just, it's sadly, it's... As uh, Evan Rachel Woods said, there's no fixing this. It's broke. And like <laughs> people know how you can fix that industry. It's just it's not going to happen. I think, uh, like I said, I've harped so very much on the wrestling portion of this because that's obviously if this doesn't get you pumped for WrestleMania, then what will? And uh, <laughs> and uh, if this doesn't convince you that maybe uh you should find a better avenue of entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. I've, I've, like I said, I've slept on so much of the movie, and it's just everything about it is great. The only thing that could have been better was I read that Dave Attell screen tested for the role of Nick, who's like the wrestling promoter that puts the 20 year later match together. Uh, mm-hmm. Having Dave Attell do that would be fucking awesome. So I'm sad we didn't get that, but you know, <laughs> is what it is. I read also, uh, we mentioned Mark uh, Margolis. He is, apparently has been in all six of Aronofsky's movies. So I guess he just kind of shoehorned a role in for him here just to make sure he could say that. He's a, he's the Bruce Campbell to uh, Aronofsky's Sam Raimi. He'll just put him in somewhere. He was the uh, swan in Black Swan. 
<laughs> just mentioned her a little bit ago, but I really, uh, Evan Rachel Wood, I was not kidding in Contreras Corner. I am a big fan. Mm-hmm. And I've always had trouble with her character here. Contreras Corner was kind of an exaggeration of how I feel, where I'm like, I know she can do it. I know she can do better than this. So I wish the movie had let her be better than this. Um, I feel like maybe she's like one scene short from being phenomenal as far as the the journey that her character goes through. It's, I mean, I'm nitpicking at this point because especially on this watch, I was I was all in. But I somewhat mean what I said in Contrast Corner where I feel like it would have been pretty cool if you didn't meet her and she was already blowing up at him if we had actually seen her escalate to that point it doesn't mean that she doesn't have to resent him from when she when she first sees him but i would have liked to i would have liked that final blow up the last time we see her in the movie to be something completely unlike anything we've seen before and that way it would have hit me even harder because she's so good in it and i feel that because we saw her so angry at the very beginning it takes away a little bit of the power that said i i think this is the first time that i've kind of choked up a little when they have their their moment and when they have their little date and they go out and they're just walking and he has the speech but even more so when she walks up to him she catches up to him and just grabs his arm and puts her head on his shoulder Mm -hmm. i guess you know i'm just getting soft with old age but i i i felt like that was really good and uh i mean i don't know how much of it you can attribute to just the performance and how much you can attribute to just the way that the movie has constructed things getting to that point right uh, it were it's just really nice and emotional to see a sweet moment <laughs> in the yeah. movie it's it's just that thing where i'm torn i think she's really good and at the same time i think that she could have been better but it's not her fault it's just that the movie is not structured to utilize her to her full potential which mm-hmm. is fine because the movie is interested in just it's the Mickey Work show and then to a lesser extent you know the the Marisa Tomei show. It, my note, my original note is like, why would you bring Evan Rachel Wood to this? It, that's the Contrarian's Corner snark. Without the Contrarian's Corner snark, I would just be like, man, you have Rachel, Evan Rachel Wood. I wish that she had like a couple more scenes fleshing out her character a little more. But still, she's she's really good. That that trio of performances is just top notch. Yeah, you're lucky if you get one of those in a movie. To have three in the same movie is pretty fucking special. For me, my most emotional reaction is a scene of um, Marissa Tomei's little boy playing with his figures, just because that's, goddamn, you want to talk about something relatable. Uh, that mm-hmm. was me from like a three or four year old to way longer than I should have been still playing with toys. And it's just so accurate using the couch form to jump off and him doing his own commentary. It's beautiful. Love it. I don't know if you saw Julio. I put a thing on Twitter asking my followers if any of them were at the ROH or CZW shows where they filmed this. And, oh. Uh, yeah, I got a good amount of responses from it, and they all just impatient wrestling fans. Yeah, made the show drag. It took too long, was what they said. <laughs> uh, Come on. <laughs> yeah. One of my followers at the Joe973. I said any specific memories, and he said Mickey pumping his fist along to the crowd, chanting "Fuck Hollywood." <laughs> I was, no, I was gonna ask if if you've ever been to a show that had a moment that was close to something as emo- as emotional as his speech uh, before the fight at the end. Yes, the Ultimate Warrior gave his farewell speech, and he died less than twelve hours later. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, I think you told me about that. I don't know if it made it into the episode. It might have made it into the cutting room floor segment on Patreon. Yeah, that Brian winning was super emotional. I've been to too many of these fucking things, man. I'm just racking my brain now trying to remember. Experienced a, a large amount of emotions at professional wrestling events. Uh, <laughs> I've never seen a speech that eloquent, though, and that like uh, perfectly put with all the accurate pauses and needed uh, steps in. As I mentioned on the closing of our last episode, though, it the Ring of Honor crowd was like catcalling him when he was doing that speech, and Aronofsky had to come out and explain to them like the importance of the scene. And some of the footage of him doing that is on the behind-the-scenes featurette on the Blu-ray. And it's just classic shitty wrestling fans. Just not understanding the significance of it, but also at that point in time, you know, all the wrestling movies they had seen were ready to rumble and no holds barred. So <laughs> I think they thought they were going to look like fucking toothless rednecks. And then incredibly uh two things in that behind the scenes featurette that i was just uh, absolutely mesmerized by one darren aronofsky and like a sweater and this really long scarf walking through the ecw arena plotting how the shots are gonna look just looking like <laughs> the biggest douchiest director you've ever seen he's he has so much fun with it though so you love it and then two when they were rehearsing the match for ring of honor they had the crash pads out like guys were practicing shit and aronofsky did a like he's like let me try this and he did a suicide dive and it showed like the whole cast practicing that a suicide dive is when you hit the ropes and then you run and you jump over the top rope and so like (laughs) i couldn't believe aronofsky cleared it and you know it's like the different cameraman and shit just taking turns doing for suicide dives. It just looked like so much fun. You know, despite the serious nature of the movie, it looked like Aronofsky had a lot of fun making it. Uh, you know, for the three leads, you have to go to kind of a dark place. So I don't know that they would necessarily say that it was a fun time. But what a movie. I mean, obviously, with what I've talked about it, and I can go on and on analyzing the wrestling aspect of it. And I think that's kind of what I why I leaned into that is because any one of our listeners would expect me to do so. And that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. A plus for me, it gets the whole, it gets the highest praise it can get kind of bummed that Mickey didn't win the Oscar for it. Sean Penn will be there again. I don't think Mickey Rourke will. Cause like we made a brief mention to earlier, the goodwill that he got from this, the big cash in was Iron Man two. And he is not bad in that. I want to make that clear. He is fine. As, he's fine as Whiplash. Uh, it's just that movie wasn't good. He had the, the two big things I remember: Iron Man two and uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Yes. Yeah. Which I mean, I, again, I thought he was fine there. I like Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Fine. It's a bummer that it didn't go further. Oh well, he was in Sin City too. That was like the the other big thing. His Robert Rodriguez had him for a couple of times. But yeah, it just kind of. I mean, I don't know that he faded away again, but it was not. You know, Travolta's renaissance lasted longer, just to think of recent examples. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We haven't had Mickey Rourke's bolt yet. That's kind of what we're waiting on. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen him in anything recently. I, I mean, obviously, I know he's still working, but still, uh, that was... Yeah, that, that was a little disappointing that he didn't go any further. I'm giving it five stars, too. I think that before last night, I would have given it four stars, maybe four and a half, but... Uh, Last night, like I said, it just kept me up. It grabbed me from the beginning. They didn't let me go. Uh, That's a big one when it's late at night and you just like are already kind of clocked out going into yeah. it and it manages to get you back in. That's a big one. You get the 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 movie-related second wind. Suddenly you're awake again. And it, especially, it was a movie that I'd already seen. I knew exactly what was going to happen in every scene. But I was just, it was like watching it again. It was great. So five stars. 
All right, so an A-plus and five stars. This gets the contrarians full Monty. It's not often that we are both in agreement with the highest appraises. So take that for what it's worth. Watch The Wrestler before we enter uh, WrestleMania weekend where things really matter. The WrestleMania is on Saturday and Sunday this year, like last year. I hope that doesn't become their tradition, but we'll see. Watch The Wrestler beforehand and realize that life is fleeting and that the WWE doesn't really care about any of their wrestlers. <laughs> and watch... Bobby Lashley and Drew McIntyre should be good. Uh, Asuka and Rhea Ripley should be good. Should be a good time. I still plan on having fun WrestleMania weekend because this is what I live for. Julio, once uh, you and I are both immunized, once you and I are both completely immortal, we can get together and uh, <laughs> I can catch you up on the past year of wrestling that you've missed out on not being able to come over here. <laughs> you can make a, what's a, the, the super beer? The Oh, summer beer. Summer beer, yeah, and you're a big and, fan uh, of that. yeah, and you can tell me what the Undertaker's been up to since last time I was at your place, voting for Trump many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, as has become tradition with these WrestleMania bonus episodes, Julio, I want to thank you for indulging me, and of course, I want to thank our listeners for indulging me and allowing me to go on these rants and spiels. While the subject material here wasn't quite as fun as talking about uh, Hulk Hogan writing his own movie and vehicle and no holds barred. <laughs> Obviously a, a good discussion was had and a great movie was watched. Julio, what is coming up next? The conclusion of the 90s sexy <laughs> dramatic thriller arc. Yes, the long awaited conclusion and our next gray area episode is that will be 130 Crash, the David Cronenberg, what do you call it? I don't know, sexual psychodrama. I don't know. Coming of age, come spelled C U M M I N G. <laughs> and with Crash on Deck, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, now we'll move into our perennial plugs. Start off with the Festive Years, who provide our opening and closing tracks. Open us up with Last Stand. Take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our logo and all the graphics on our Patreon and our upcoming merch is courtesy of Hans Rothwieser, fellow podcaster also an author, an all-around great guy. Uh, you can check out Hans's work on his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. You can also contact him on Twitter at mildemonios or email him mildemonios at hotmail.com. He is a writer. He has a whole bunch of zombie novels that you can peruse if you speak Spanish. Most recent one is a zombie short story anthology called Zomo Zombies. Kind of a the title is a cheeky reference to the opening of the Peruvian anthem. It's a collection of short stories written by uh, Peruvian authors. Each short story takes place in the Peruvian region that the author is from. So that's that's pretty cool. He also has a bunch of podcasts. Nación Combi, Contante y Sonante, and Marginal uh, covers Peruvian current affairs and matters of economy. You can find them in every podcatcher. Hans. Thank you for all your work. It's very much appreciated. And Ms. Zoe Perez, we always like to give thanks to last here. She helps uh, curate our social media game, our Instagram account specifically. And if you're not following us there, be sure to head over to the IG and give us a follow at Contrarian Prime. Be sure to check out our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Contrarian Prime. Zoe, thank you for all the work you do. Make our shit real pretty. Much appreciated. And with all the traditional pleasantries out of the way, that's going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right, you're wrong, and Ram Jam. 